three rules of the game. Okay. This is um, <clears throat> a real estate attorney's view of assembling and managing your team from, of course, uh, the number one best-selling author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, with 20 of his trusted real estate experts. I'm going to be joined here. Hey, how you doing, BK? It's called The Real Book of Real Estate. Real experts, real stories, real life. And yesterday, I completed reading chapter one, which was with Robert Kiyosaki's accountant, who is um, Tom Wilwright. And Tom Wilwright wrote the section called The Business of Real Estate. And it contained the some team building strategies from his point of view as an accountant. Yeah, business principle number one, which was strategy that had a few steps. Step one is imagine. Step two is financial goals. Step three is a cash flow target. Step four, four is current wealth. Step five is vision, mission, and values. Step six is investment niche. Step seven is criteria. Then business principle number two is team. He had tips for building a team, which included a plan, referrals, and agreements. Business principle number three was accounting with different keys. Key one, key number one is, a, is purposeful accounting. Key number two is accurate bookkeeping. Key number two A is chart of accounts. Key number two B is detailed data entry. Key number two C is journal entries. Key number three, consistency. Key number four, frequency. Key number five, online banking. And principle number four, reporting. Report number one, statement of cash flows. Report number two, ratio analysis. And then you had ratio number two, um, one, I'm sorry, yeah, ratio number two was ratio analysis. Or report number two is ratio analysis. Then you had ratio number one, which is the cap rate. Uh, there goes standing. Um, all of you are invited to hang out and be on the speakers if anything sticks out to you and you want to chime in. Welcome, welcome. Uh, ratio number two is ROI. Then we had report number three, which was comparison reports. Then we went on to business principle number five, taxes. We had tip number one, tax strategy. Tip number two was entity structure. Tip number three was travel, meals, and entertainment, which is my favorite part. Tip number four, depreciation. Tip number five, documentation. And then, um, before we get started with the a real estate attorney's view of assembling and managing your team, I'll just go back and look at the end of um, the end of chapter one, which we talked about ways to learn more. He has a book, uh, Tom Wheelwright has a book called Tax-Free Wealth, How to Build Massive Wealth by Permanently Lowering Your Taxes. Um, oh, by the way, Danny, are you able to hear me okay? Because I'm testing out a new rig right now. Well, a new old rig. You're perfect. Okay, good. You sound good. All right, good, perfect. So, 
tax-free wealth, how to build massive wealth by permanently lowering your taxes. Tom Will writes best-selling book for entrepreneurs and investors who want to permanently reduce their taxes. ProVision Wealth Strategy U, a free resource at wealthstrategyu.com. ProVision PLC, an international CPA firm based in Tempe, Arizona, developing wealth and tax strategies for clients in all 50 states and worldwide. ProVision School of Wealth Strategy, a monthly subscription to comprehensive training materials on building wealth, includes courses on creating your wealth vision, building your wealth team, and designing your personal wealth strategy. I gotta love the branding. Then he's got ProVision School of Tax Strategy, a monthly subscription to comprehensive training materials on permanently reducing taxes, includes courses on designing your family tax strategy, involving your children in your real estate business, and getting the greatest tax benefits out of your real estate. And that's Tom Wheelwright. For more than 30 years, Tom Wheelwright has developed innovative tax, business, and wealth strategies for sophisticated investors and business owners across the United States and around the world, resulting in millions of dollars in profits for those clients. His goal is to teach people how to create a strategic and proactive approach to wealth that creates lasting success. As the founder of ProVision, Tom is an innovator of proactive consulting services for ProVision's premium clientele who, on average, pay much less in taxes and earn much more on their investments. He works with select clients on their wealth, business, and tax strategies and lectures on wealth and tax strategies around the world. Okay, good. Passing some time there. Um, so, then chapter two is titled A Wealth of a Real Estate Attorney's View of Assembling and Managing Your Team. It's by Charles W. Lotzar. Before we get started, Danny or BK, one of you guys uh, have anything to chime in, anything you anybody you want to cuss out or um, <clears throat> any opinions that you want to vent before we move on? <laughs> uh, just real I I mean I could Google this one. Sorry for bothering you. No you're what, fine. what year was this uh Twenty twenty one. Oh, okay, yeah, because tax laws change a lot. Yeah, they they do change a lot, and um, I wouldn't have gotten this book if it was even like two thousand nineteen. Right, right. Um, okay, cool. So it was first published in two thousand thirteen, and then again in two thousand sixteen, and then twenty twenty one. So they've been updating it. Obviously, they they realize the need for keeping current. So, all right, uh, this one should be, if you get through it, it's actually, in my opinion, I think this one's going to be a lot um, less complex than the first one. I think that's why they started it, that way with the accountant, because, you know, there's a saying from a guy, uh, his name is Napoleon Hill, who wrote the book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Have you guys, um, either of you guys heard of that book? I'm not rich that poor. That's Robert Kiyosaki. I mean, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. How about you guys? Remember that book? No? Um, Think and Grow Rich is... Um, oh, cool. Yeah, BK, BK says he'll be making breakfast and listening. Cool. Um, so it was published in 1937 or 1938. And something he said was really interesting. He says, um, do what needs to be done when it needs to be done and as it needs to be done. Complete the most difficult tasks first to destroy the habits of procrastination and replace them with habits of action. So I might not be the exact quote, but that's pretty darn close to it. 
So I think that's why they might have started off with one of the most difficult things, which is uh, accounting. So from there, let's get right into it. Chapter two, a real estate attorney's view of assembling and managing your team. Of course, there's an introduction by Mr. Robert Kiyosaki himself, and he says, I met Chuck Lozar in 2001 or so when he was a senior partner in a national law firm. At Chuck's former law firm, I delivered a presentation to approximately 10 attorneys that covered my rich dad's philosophy on money, wealth creation, and wealth management. Chuck seemed to be the only one out of the 10 who understood or was interested in what I was saying. In 2003, Kim and I used Chuck to finalize one of our biggest real estate investments. It was a zero down deal that would put more than $30,000 a month net income in our pockets. If not for Chuck, this deal could, could have been our biggest nightmare. He found irregularities that most people, including most lawyers, would have missed. On top of that, after the deal was closed, Chuck offered to give us a discount on some of his firm's legal fees since he felt his firm did not work as effectively as it could have. Needless to say, we told him to bill us in full and keep the money. He had more than earned it. In 2007, Chuck again came to our rescue, this time as our personal attorney against our former business partner. The lawsuit was the worst, most vile event in Kim's and my life. If not for Chuck, I do not know where Kim and I would be today. The good news is that Chuck Lozar has turned out to be far more than our real estate attorney. Through Chuck's guidance, the Rich Dad Company has emerged stronger, better staffed, and much more profitable. Personally, I have emerged more mature, wiser, and less of a hothead, which is a miracle. Chuck has not only made Kim and me vastly richer, we have become better entrepreneurs and investors. The lesson again is this. It is often through our worst deals with the worst people that the best people emerge. Robert Kiyosaki. Alright. And I hope you guys are enjoying the view of this marbleized table here. And it's got a nice pattern on it. <laughs> Alright, so here we go. I know attorneys see the world differently than most people. A working relationship isn't just a working relationship. It ideally would be a contract between two parties with built-in protections, limitations, and provisions, just in case the relationship goes south. A piece of real estate isn't just a piece of property. It's an asset that brings with it the need for an appropriate entity structure, identification of risk, allocation of risk, mitigation of risk and liabilities, and a host of other legal protections and caveats associated with its development, management, and eventual sale. I know you're thinking life is easier when you're not an attorney. You're probably right, but for me, life as an attorney, and particularly a real estate attorney, is full of excitement, the challenges, and the accomplishments that can come only from working with people so that they sleep well at night have their family fortunes protected, and bring their dreams to life. It's a profession that keeps me continually learning, which I love. Real estate is a dynamic field that keeps every day at the office new and fresh. The likelihood that you're reading this chapter written by an attorney first is slim, so I'll assume you've read at least a few chapters before mine. If you have, you've probably noticed that there are a number of references in them to team members, the professionals, the professionals it takes to make a real estate deal actually happen. 
many of the contributors list the types of team members that they need in the type of real estate work that they do and how they've helped. Well, I will echo their beliefs. Team members are the deciding factors in spelling success or disaster for a real estate project. In my practice, I have seen teams that operate seemingly effortlessly and others that are clumsy and doomed to failure. So how do you assemble one that works effortlessly and avoid the kinds of disasters that are waiting to happen? The answer is you can't. You can only try to do your best and know that the reality of your team, particularly as you are just starting out, will fall somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Your job will be to assemble and manage a group of pros that makes its way progressively more efficient to close every deal you do. My perspective on teams and team members is different from the views of many in this book because I am one of those team members. Many of the others in this book are the investors who drive the team. They delegate to team members who advise them. I'm the one they delegate to and who advises them on how to lead a team. That gives me a slightly different perspective. Combine that with my attorney's perspective and you have a chapter with three primary purposes. One, to tell you who you need on your team and how to know you have a winner. Two, to identify known risks and make sure that they are properly allocated among other writing parties, including the members of your team. Three, to establish performance measures and deadlines and to follow up to make sure that each of those performance measures and deadlines are met in a timely manner. See, this is where my lawyer's mentality comes into play. I know your team will not be perfect, no matter how perfectly you follow this book's directions, how well you interview potential team members, or how ironclad their references were. Life and real estate deals are not that cut and dried. So what do you do? Well, quite simply, you do your best on the front end and you attempt to protect yourself on the back end. Three rules to, three rules of the game. Three rules of the game. Before you say to yourself, this team thing seems like more trouble than it is worth. For my project, I'll keep it simple and do most of the work I need alone. I'll keep the team small, as small as possible, and that will maximize my problems. Understand that it is very hard to do anything in real estate alone. It is a team sport, and as such, I have assembled my three rules of the game. Nowhere else will your team come into play more than when it is time to perform your due diligence. It's a necessary part of every real estate deal, and with the right team, it can be your best friend and actually a lot of fun because you often find the hidden gems that can signal great opportunity. On the other hand, it can be the beginnings of a vivid nightmare you are living because you are the proud owner of a problem property thanks to a team that missed something big during due diligence. Again, the first camp is the place to be. You'll recall that the due diligence period is usually not less than 60 days in length. Its purpose is to discover any problems and opportunities with the property to determine whether you want to go through with the transaction, and if so, with what specific stipulations. It's also designed to allocate and alleviate risk among various parties, the buyer, the seller, the lender, and the various third-party professionals on your team. Chuck's three rules of the game. Chuck. Where did, where did they get... How, how did people named Charles 
or Charlie. How did they get the, did the Chuck thing come in? All right. Chuck's three rules of the game. Rule number one, talent pays for itself. Accept that hiring a capable and talented real estate team to complete your transaction is in your best interest. Although there will be cost up front, your investment should more than pay for itself over time. Rule number two, you are hiring folks' brains. Let them use their brains to solve your problems. Allow teammates to give you their honest and complete assessment of any transaction given the circumstances presented. You want to know all the problems so that you can craft solutions and quantify the costs of obtaining those solutions. Unfortunately, in some instances, you will learn that the cost of continuing with the transaction outweighs the opportunity to be achieved, and you are forced to stop so as to prevent yourself from throwing good money after bad. Rule number three. It is better to hire someone with outstanding judgment and wisdom than a person who has merely completed similar types of transactions. I, I, I want to make a note about this. This is definitely the most difficult thing to be done when it comes to putting together a team. Yeah. And someone who has more wisdom and insight. Yeah, of course. But then not, just, yeah. But not only that, um, just this whole team building. I mean, listen to the stuff he's saying. He's saying cause once I once I start seeing these things, like he says, accept that hiring a capable and talented real estate team to complete your transaction is in your best interest. He, there, there are a lot of things that I know that we're going to be going through. That at first, for some parts of it, we're kind of we're going to um, exclude because of the complexity in order to start something and then start onboarding people later. I mean, I already have a law firm, so that's one thing, and they, they, have, they specifically have a real estate division, so that's not a problem, but, but they're not... The kind of teams that they're talking about building are more like what you're going to be working with in the long run. Long, yeah. Um, and in other deals, but but that doesn't mean that um, that we're going to exclude it fully. But that in order to get started as quickly as possible and to get the experience, we might have to forego a lot of the more complex parts of, of building a team. Um, but that's why reading through this, we'll be able to see it. Take notes if you want, because there's some things you'll always find some golden nuggets in the things that you can do, even if there are things that seem like they're overwhelming at first. So. It kind of looks like we are already building that team, even though we're not necessarily like moving along. But, oh, and Hakeem, your other headphones are okay. a ten thousand times in better. Room number two, when it comes Yo. to due diligence, you want a team that will be willing to learn the truth about the property and tell you the brutal facts. Hakeem, if your baby is ugly. You need professionals and advisors who aren't going to be afraid to tell you the truth to your face before the acquisition takes place. So let's delve into the team members and their roles from a fellow uh -oh. team member and a lawyer's perspective. Consider these your four team members, the ones you'll need for virtually every real estate deal you do. I believe that people generally fall oh, into two categories. Those who are relationship-oriented and those who Good are transaction-oriented. 
Although I have a law practice based on the ability to successfully complete transactions, I am a relationship-oriented person who generally seeks out other teammates who are also relationship-oriented. Make I'm a going distraction. to other teammates who are transaction oriented, but I do so recognizing that their ability and willingness to step up to solve a problem is limited, especially oh, after wait, the actually, transaction I have closes. I could text him. Of course, it's the real estate attorney. Who would have guessed? Noticed how I wrote real estate attorney, not just attorney. That's the first tip I will give you right up front. Real estate transactions are significantly different from other transactions, so it's critical to hire an attorney who understands and is experienced in real estate. Contract attorneys without real estate experience are not good enough. The reason I am so emphatic here is because a good real estate attorney can take a lot of the pressure off you by acting as the quarterback and taking responsibility for coordinating the entire team. A good attorney is strong, experienced, and at the same time, self-confident enough to know when he or she needs your input or help from a third party. There are times when a real estate transaction will have nuances that your lead real estate attorney, no matter how experienced, may not have ever encountered before. You don't want your attorney learning on your transaction. You want an attorney with a network of people inside or outside the firm that he or she can call on to bridge any gaps. Often, a good real estate attorney can be the master of the due diligence budget and count and keep all the other team members on track and on time with their deliverables. That means you'll want your attorney on board early, right at the very start, to handle the early documents, such as the term sheet or the letter of intent, to make sure that the allocation and assignment of risks are thoughtfully documented for closing. Real life story. Every real. Oh. There's a. You know what? We got to do this. Damn. Hakeem. Wait. Can you add to it? Hey. Okay. Let's not interrupt for a while. Yeah, the other headphones were better. Um, but also, if you already have a real estate attorney, um, hey, uh, what the hell are you guys? Hold on, I'm not hearing you. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, were you guys hearing me before? Yeah, we were hearing you, but we were, but Danny was trying to interrupt you to tell, like, right when you started, right before you started reading again, she was like, but your other headphones were better, and then you were like, alright, back to reading, and then she was like, wait, Hakeem, da 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 you know, oh. but like, um, so that's what, that's what just happened. But, but now, is this better now? Oh yeah, this is way better. Because it wasn't plugged in all the way, that's so weird. Oh, that makes sense. Um, Darn it. But also, before uh, yeah. uh, you go back to reading, I was thinking, since you said you already have a real estate attorney. Um, well, I have a, an entire law firm through my Legal Shield program, and they have a real estate division. Like, anytime you talk to them or correspond to them, like, let me in on it. 
because then then because like i went to law school so i'll yeah. be able to like quickly pick up what's happening and kind of like use that as breadcrumbs to like self-learn real estate real estate transactions oh yeah definitely one of the things i learned when looking at um the courses for being a real estate agent was a lot of it is heavily based on law in the first place what's up derek and one other So, we're, so are you guys ready? Because I'm going to go on to the box here. That's the real life story. But actually, could you reread? I'm so sorry. We were trying to, we were trying to get, get you to hear us, so I wasn't yeah. really hearing the last couple paragraphs you read. Okay. No, I don't mind at all. So, um, oh, yeah, yeah. So it was after Chuck's three rules of the game, right? So... Yeah, and that's a pretty short part here. So just a couple of paragraphs here. So it is, as I mentioned in rule number two, when it comes to due diligence, you want a team that will be willing to learn the truth about the property and tell you the brutal facts. If your baby is ugly, you need professionals and advisors who aren't going to be afraid to tell you the truth to your face before the acquisition takes place. So let's delve into the team members and their roles from a fellow team member and a lawyer's perspective. Consider these your core team members, the ones you'll need for virtually every real estate deal you do. I believe that people generally fall into two categories, those who are relationship-oriented and those who are transaction-oriented. Although I have a law practice based on the ability to successfully complete transactions, I am a relationship-oriented person who generally seeks out other teammates are relationship oriented but I do so recognizing that their ability and willingness to step up to solve a problem is limited especially after the transaction closes real estate attorney notice how I wrote real estate attorney not just attorney that's the first tip I will give you right up front real estate transactions are significantly different from other transactions so it is critical to hire an attorney who understands and is experienced in real estate contract attorneys without real estate experience are not good enough the reason I am so emphatic here is because a good real estate attorney can take a lot of the pressure off you by acting as the quarterback and taking the responsibility for coordinating the entire team. A good attorney is strong, experienced, and at the same time self-confident enough to know when he or she needs your input or help from a third party. There are times when a real estate transaction will have nuances that your lead real estate attorney, no matter how experienced, may not have ever encountered before. You don't want your attorney learning on your transaction. You want an attorney with a network of people inside or outside the firm that he or she can call on to bridge any gaps. Often, a good real estate attorney can be the master of the due diligence budget and calendar and keep all the other team members on track and on time with their deliverables. That means you'll want your attorney on board early, right at the very start, to handle the early documents, such as the term sheet or the letter of intent, to make sure that the allocation and assignment of risks are thoughtfully documented for closing. All right. Real life story. I always like the real life stories. Every... Yes. Wait, can I interrupt real quick? Please. Yes. I think... Um... 
just like I'm guessing as far as like you know when you're writing out a transaction the allocation of risk and like like the type of shit that attorneys bring up this is just I think like I think that what he's referring to like won't be that hard for us to figure out and do ourselves and not have to pay lawyers like like figuring out okay let's say we all have I mean, I don't really know how a co-op would work, but normally how an investment deal works with partners is that you allocate, like, all right, you own this percentage, this percentage, this percentage. What does that mean? Like, okay, for this deal, it'll mean you get this percentage of the income and you own this percentage of the equity in the business. And what if you die? Because it is like the default is like... You would think, well, if you die, then, like, I'll just buy you out. But complicated-ass shit happens, like, when the wife gets 33% of the business or whatever, you know? Mm. So then you're like, oh, well, we just need an attorney to, like, write that in so that nothing, like, crazy happens to us with, you know, something that we're not capable of thinking of ahead of time. But if we just read enough of these deals, which will probably just take, like, I mean, I don't know how a co-op would work, but if we can find just like other people who've written the shit up, yeah. we can just copy what's been written. Basically, you know, we'll, we'll just use read it and use our creative thinking brains to be like, okay, how do we want to make this look? If we're not doing the exact same thing, you know, how, what right. kind of changes do we want to make? I mean, we can definitely like use things as templates, you know, to yeah. to, to use the wording if it's been structured similarly to how we want to structure the deals but yeah like that reference there at the end there where he was like you know but you need the attorneys to help you figure out Term you sheets, know letter of intent allocation and assignment of risk all that okay. yeah yeah carefully documented for closing yeah so if we get sued what do we do yeah there's stuff like that but like it yeah if we can just find enough deals we can just copy and save money so <laughs> exactly I like that plan. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's why we are sheltering everything in LLCs and different LLC for every property, which should be factored into the expense of everything, right? Because an LLC as a as a um, a structure type of business structure has to be renewed once a year, and just that just gets put in the budget for. That depends on your state. Mine's forever. Oh, really? That's dope. With the LLC in New York? Is, yeah, my is I didn't have to renew or anything. Okay, well, interesting to know. I've had it since 21, yeah. Well, I'm still active. That depends on, yeah. I suppose, what state. That's the problem. That's good to know. Is that every state yeah, is every state is different with the LLC. You woke and vote. I mean, the tax... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the tax pass-through works the same in every state, but, like, how you form it is different in every state. Okay. Well, the good old Commonwealth of Virginia makes it very easy. Um, oh, that's cool. But, yeah, it's a simple thing. What the hell? But, yeah, I'm not going to lie. I woke and, bo and baked. <laughs> that's uh, good. So I, was, I was just high interrupting. So that's fine. High, high interrupting is fine because it breaks up the monotony of something that would otherwise put me the fuck to sleep. So, it's good. All right. Uh, I see Derek is still here with us. Um, I know that he might have some mighty fine quips later. All right, real life story. 
every real estate opportunity is different, and it's the truly unique ones that sometimes sometimes cause your teams to expand beyond your expectations, even into the realm of the unbelievable. Too often, real estate investors become successful based on their ability to overcome numerous problems, and they become insensitive to the weight of certain problems that would otherwise thwart a transaction. I recall one group of clients who were prolific real estate investors. Although they were astute business people who accomplished a number of successful transactions in sequence, their history of success impeded their ability to walk away from a bad deal. Even when they knew that there would be insufficient equity in a transaction and visible and invisible deferred maintenance issues with the heating and cooling system for the apartment complex, which needed replacement and caused the buildings to settle in the ground by more than one foot. No matter how successful you have been in the past, you need to replicate good habits for the diligence and closing with each new transaction. Most often, however, your team will be highly predictable and consist of several core members. You will find that the more you work with them, the better you will all work together, which will increase your efficiency. Wow, building settle a foot into the ground, that's a nightmare. Hello, Gator. A good real estate attorney can be your greatest ally. I frequently find... I frequently find myself providing ideas and advice that will enhance my clients' transactions and their businesses as a whole. God damn it. At our firm, we approach projects from a business owner's perspective. Business owners want us to tell them the things that are standing in their way, of course. But they also want us to come up with innovative ways to transcend the problems and get the deal done. If you have an attorney who seems to be pointing out all the problems without posing solutions, that's a sign that you may need another attorney. I want to pause right there and make a point about that. Very often, when I think that there's somebody that I'm getting to know or that I think that I can trust, and then I proceed to tell them something like, yes, I'm going to... Um, proceed with the acquisition of this property as to, to make it as close to a co-op as possible and so on and so forth. One of the first things that I always hear in any time you're trying to move forward with something is somebody starting to point out all the problems that can happen. And I understand that we have to be careful with things, but, um, but, but I think that it's important to recognize that problems will happen but to not be talking about and bringing them up all the time unless it's actually posing a problem like some people even said something like oh well, well you gotta you know make sure that the people that you're working with you do a background check and that this and this and that and that they're safe and I'm just like bro listen what was I born yesterday you know there's more to working with people than their background checks. I mean, people have criminal records who have no business having one in the first place because of just the way that our society is, is structured. So sometimes the things that people put up in the way... What I'm saying is this. Look out for naysayers because sometimes they're just saying nay because they feel like they can't do it themselves. Yeah, the whole background be. check system is crazy and fucked up. Right. You're so right. 
And, and the fact of the matter is, again, right, there are people who've been to jail, who've been arrested, who have bad credit, who all these different things does not mean they're a bad person or that they don't need it to be given a chance. I mean, how many times have you been in a situation where somebody gives you this, this, um, this it's, like, it's like this conundrum where you're like, um, you don't have any job experience. Well, it's because I can't get a job yet, right? And it's like, how do you get your first job without job experience? And then it's that whole circle of similar things like that, where somebody needs to get something done and they're perfectly capable of doing it, but on paper with their stupid their arrest for a DUI back in 1999 or their credit is like fucking 412 or something like that, but they're completely capable of doing something. Um, And so to exclude them without um, meeting them or at least talking to them or getting a feel or even giving somebody a shot on a probationary period um, should be considered. All right. All right, so continuing here. If you have an attorney who seems to be pointing out all the problems without posing solutions, then that's a sign you may need another attorney. If you have an attorney who conducts himself or herself in a manner that makes you uncomfortable, exemplia gratis, rudeness, or overly passive or overly aggressive under the circumstances, then that's another sign that you may need another attorney. Specifically, it's our job to read and analyze all documentation, including third-party reports, title and survey, purchase and sale agreements, and loan documents. Sometimes we may be requested to draft these documents along with corporate entity documents when dealing with equity investments and partnerships. Hiring a real estate attorney, what to look for, and what to watch out for. What to look for. Portability of past knowledge, wisdom, and judgment. Availability of time to do the work. And understanding of professional limitations. Openness to engage engaging the assistance of other lawyers or law firms, a willingness and ability to work as a team player, experience in various forms of real estate transactions, experience with complex finance structuring of real estate transactions, demeanor and approach to the practice of law, e.g., that's part gentleman, part pit bull, the support of the law firm, how deep is the bench, what to watch out for, any past malpractice claims, any past bar complaints, experience with contracts, business, and litigation, but not in relation to real estate, a personality and or demeanor incompatible with the client's personality and or demeanor. Your attorney can either bill you hourly for his or her work or provide a soft estimate for the scope of work. Should the scope of work exceed the estimate, the additional work is billed at the hourly rate. Another payment method is hourly against a hard estimate. These agreements generally have a large contingency built in for unforeseen events that is payable at closing. This type of contract can put the attorney and the client at odds. You want your attorney to find the unexpected. That can save you in a real estate transaction. But if you are worried that the work of searching for the unexpected will cost you more money, you may be thwarting your own success. In the best instances, the fruits of the deal, or the savings in terms of money and or risk, a contingent fee that changes which party is in control will more than pay for any attorney fees. Many of our clients feel we have more than earned our fees, and that's ideally what both sides want. 
Over the years, I have focused a good portion of my law practice working on contingent fee matters related to large revenue bond financings and tax credit projects. Whenever I have a contingent fee, I want to be the person with the most control over the ability to advance and close the transaction. However, a lawyer's compass needs to be completely aligned with the interest of his client, regardless of his fee arrangement. Next is how to construct an, an effective engagement letter. How to construct an, an effective engagement letter. Most members of your team will require an engagement letter before beginning work. They may provide one, or you can. To protect yourself, make sure the following points are included. Spell out scope of work, particularly the roles of each party. Specify the nature and timing of payment, including timing of service and due date. Define the particulars of termination for both the contractor and you. Be specific on needs, software, and deliverables, eight copies of plans, etc., due to, to cost and which party will bear the cost. Disclose conflicting relationships. Identify and allocate known risks. Dispute resolution. Limit liability. Next team members are real estate brokers. <coughs> real estate brokers. Real estate brokers are important team members because they are the generators of opportunities. They can decide decide who sees a property that is coming online first, because coming online first, and can be the bearers of great opportunities. What it takes is a broker who understands the importance of relationships and working as part of a team. On the other hand, many brokers are transactional, living and dying by their fees, which naturally results in an eat-what-you-kill mentality. They will indiscriminately pose opportunities that are nothing more than distractions because they do not fit your business goals. What you really want is a real estate broker who looks out for your best interest, understands your needs, and seeks out opportunities that match them. That adds value. Beyond this, the true role of a real estate broker is to bring a willing buyer and a willing seller together, not necessarily to ensure his or her client gets the best deal. But the good ones do both. They work to execute the best possible transaction for their clients from start to finish. Sometimes, a real estate broker will perform what is known as dual representation, which means the same broker will represent both the buyer and the seller. On the surface, this may seem like an opportunity to save some money and commissions. After all, typical transactions have two brokers who must share the commission. But dual representation can be tricky, and in the very least, it requires full disclosure of all known facts and circumstances to avoid conflicts of interest. While most people in business recognize the need to adjust to market changes, real estate brokers really need to moderate their styles as market conditions fluctuate. During the boom times of the mid-2000s, many real estate brokers 
based on the volume of work, became more transactional as they tried to close as many deals as they could. But the best ones knew that booms also create busts, and it's the real pros who maintain relationships during the booms that have big business during the downtimes. The best brokers also know that the height of the market is not the time to buy and provide that level of counsel to investor clients. They are market advisors as well as salespeople who are in it for the long term and know that no deal today is worth the loss of many deals tomorrow. That's the kind of broker you want. Accountant. Remember the first chapter of this book was about the accountant or written and written by the accountant Tom Wilwright. Accountant. I have found that almost all business is based on some form of mathematics, and it's important to have accountants who are well-versed in the intricacies of real estate. In fact, much of the advice that I gave you with respect to establishing a relationship with a real estate attorney has equal weight to establishing a relationship with an accountant. I have also found that one of the first folks hired internally by real estate investors is an accountant who will be charged with working cooperatively with an outside accounting firm. Frequently, the internal accountant is charged with a substantial amount of responsibility beyond accounting and feels pressure to limit the involvement of the outside accounting firm. If the internal accountant is strong enough, then there will not be problems. Unfortunately, problems frequently do arise based on a lack of communication and sophistication. A strong real estate accountant will understand the effect of changes in deal structure on the various tax attributes such as amortization, depreciation, and losses, which are inevitable during a construction phase since no money is being generated during the development and construction of the project. Additionally, a real estate accountant will know when it is in your best interest to obtain a cost segregation study to identify the component parts of the building or buildings so as to allow for an accurate and possibly accelerated application of amortization and depreciation. Architect. All right, now this is talking about, this is building like an actual thing from the, round, the ground up. But this is good because it gives a lot of different things because we got an architect, there's a civil engineer, professional surveyor. But it's, this is really deep. This is interesting to go through all of this stuff. All right. Architect. Needless to say, guys, we're not going to be, uh, unless it's more economically financially feasible and makes sense to get a piece of land and build something from the ground up first but I think that the the simplest way to, to go in first is to is to um, to acquire an already well, there, built structure there are like like on Anderson Island um, in uh, it's like in between Seattle and uh, Olympia there yeah. are like plots of there's lots of little plots of land for like 10k still. Really. And so that's kind of I'm thinking that that might be for investors like us like one of the last ways to kind of get in so wait because a everything is so expensive. So BK, you said Anderson Island? It is like you have to boat in or off. But it's also it's got a golf that's course. That's the big drawback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no ferry. Yeah, the I don't think not even ferry service maybe Maybe they stop by once a week or some shit. 
I've looked into it. So Anderson Island has plots of land for 10k, but there's no regular um, like transportation, like uh, municipal or like government provided transportation to and from the islands. Correct. So that would be, you know, that's a business opportunity in and of, of itself. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of future tourism opportunity, like business opportunity on that. I agree. For if ferrying you, people to and from the island? But if, Especially because it's going to be all rich people around that part, around Western Washington, and it's just, there's going to be a lot of money floating around. Well, uh, Derek, aren't you about to be a boat right. owner? Yeah, Derek. Dick. Head, dickhead, like, come on. So then, hello, you're in on this. My partner Uh, is on the Oregon coast right now, and I told them to look for slips for you. Oh, nice. Sweet. Very cool. Where where at? Long Beach. Wait, where? I think there's a Long Beach, Oregon, Mm -hmm. or I just dreamt where they are. I think they're near Newport, okay, though. Okay, that's near, near Newport. Oh, you Newport, guys, give me awesome. a moment and talk amongst yourselves. I'll be right back. I'm going to have to grab something so I can look at a map. Oh, he's going to look at Anderson Island. Good idea. So, um, yeah, maybe there's still a possibility with that island, though, if, if there was a communal kind of thing going on anyway, uh, and you just go in on a I boat. I mean, I think it's Go in like- on a boat together. You build a little fucking dock for everybody to use, you know, and just try to organize times when you go back and forth from land, you know? I mean, maybe we should go but go in on a tourist boat. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If you guys are... Like a, live, like a ferry. Though, I mean, I don't think it's totally out of reach as long as it's as cheap as what I remember and if the property taxes are not too high. I don't think I looked into that. Well, the problem with Anderson Island is that I don't think we can, like, put up a trailer or, like, put up a tent and live on the land. I think it's, like, like heavily zoned and, like, HOA'd and, like, we have to build a yeah. house. All right. So there, are, there are kind of some of these kind of loopholes out there, though. I remember coming across an article, and coincidentally, it was uh, Washington as well. And I don't remember at all where it was, but I, I think it was on the edge of the Olympic uh, National Park. And somebody bought, you know, some relatively inexpensive land. Uh, the rules were you couldn't okay, you couldn't so... build on it necessarily, but you could live on it as long as you like had some sort of a business. So this, hey, these islands are they um, northern southern. or in the southern part? Anderson Island is okay. is like southernmost, really. I think. It's in the Puget Sound. Yeah, it's way way it's down. Closer to California. No, 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 no. What? What? No. Like, uh, it's a half hour south of Seattle. It's, like, closer to Tacoma than Seattle. Yeah, yeah, Tacoma. Uh, like, in between Tacoma and I have and a question. Shelton. I used to work in Shelton. What's your um, question, Danny? What is... I, I have a document that got mailed to me that it... From the front it looks like it's a tax document but it's actually a check and it's a it looks really like a legit check it doesn't say not a check it and it like but it's a pre-approval from clean start automotive division disbursement department for for thirty thousand dollars so i'm not like this is i don't like i don't know i don't think this is like 
I don't know if this is real, but obviously I, I don't need an auto loan. But like, what is, yeah, is it's this? Like, like a high interest loan. Yeah, thing. a high interest loan thing. Because it, it's a check, check. Like it's legit check. It's For how much? 30000 It's a legit check. I really strongly believe this is now, a legit check. The, it has a check number six two six. I can sign it. I can. It says endorse here. It's it. But hold it, on, Dan. It's what, signed. Even. What is, what's the organization that it's from? Again, I want to hear that because there's something very important in there. Um, it says Clean Start, and then Automotive Division Disbursement Department. Okay, um, and so but the the pre-approval. Um, it gives like a, it's it's probably telling me what this is, and I see seven point nine percent is probably the interest. So um, but it's all in Spanish. Yeah, okay. it's it's all in Spanish, so I can't really. And it's a check for thirty thousand. Yeah, legit. Like it has it has a routing on it. It has an account number. It has a check number. It it can endorse it and everything. I'd look into that. And see what you can do with it, or like look into, right? look at, look and find get out. Get a boat. Yeah, well, look and find out who the um, that specific organization, clean start. and see what P- yeah, Clean Start Automotive Disbursement Division. Find out who they are. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. It really looks like a tax document from the front. Like you, like you tear off the corners and shit. Those three ends. Yep. And it says like 2023 on it, looking just like a fucking W two. Uh, you know what? Unfortunately, because I'm using a road atlas, I don't see those islands on here. Because of course you can't drive into the fucking ocean. Well, you can, but it's just. Um... <laughs> but yeah, you can just like it's basically to, you can it's basically Tacoma, which is right off the I five in between Seattle yeah, and Washington. I think the mistake Hakeem um, is making he's looking at the coast like. Oh, I am. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, it's in the Puget Sound. <laughs> okay, because I'm looking at. Okay, because I see the the five now, and that's there's definitely like not a giant house. inlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, so like the five uh, goes up and hit the bottom of the inlet is uh, is Olympia, um, and then like if you go up a little more, you see Tacoma, and then out from there is basically where Anderson Island, Anderson Island is. Okay, so so here's what I'm seeing. Uh, oh, wow, Portland is right next to Vancouver. Okay, but anyway, um, coming down here, da, 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 da. I'm going further south. I see Salem, Albany, Corvallis. I'm, I'm following the five down. Junction Wait, no, City. now go north. Go north to Washington. Okay. So up, up. Uh, oh. Well, okay, I'm in Portland, Vancouver, Salmon Creek. Yeah, now go north 100 miles. Yo, Hakeem has lost his fuck, man. You can't, you can't Shut the navigate fuck. if we ever take a and road trip, a I'm just saying. <laughs> fuck you, Derek. Uh, St. Uh, Helens. I'm just surprised he's trying to use an actual Mama. paper map instead of Google Maps like the well, rest of us. Well, forget you guys. I like I like touching things with my hands. All right, I see it. You're like a cartographer. I am a cartographer. Anyway, yeah, okay. <laughs> I see. I see uh, so Puget Island up here, um, near Brownsmead. 
I don't know that area very well. Okay, well, I'm looking at, it's, it's, it's a little bit north of uh, Klatskini. There's a Ranier or Rainier, Longview. Um, yeah, Rainier. Um, Rainier. Yeah, I'm down to uh, invest in anything anywhere around there, but especially around the 101 loop. Like, that area, like, around the Olympic Forest is very famous in the rest of the world. Like, that Germans shit. tour there year-round. Of course, because it's fucking cold. Oh, look. It's not that cold. It never snows. I, okay, yeah, I see on. Long Beach. Hold on, though. Anywhere around there? Uh, t take it easy. Take a step back. Think about Mount Rainier. That's an active volcano that's overdue to explode. So, the, last time, the last time that fucker blew... It, it it sent uh you know like what's that it sent pompeii style fucking sludge and lava all the way to puget sound so you, you want to avoid be, be, being in the pathway of mount rainier exploding that's the only thing i would say otherwise there's great deals throughout the area just distance yourself a little do you want to do you want to not have a boss anymore or not no, I'm with you. I'm not being, like, uh, shitty. It's a big state. There's other areas. But try not to set up camp near a fucking... No, but check this uh, out. An overdue volcano? In... <laughs> yes. I, was in... I was in Port Townsend the other day. And Port Townsend stays way nicer than, like... Like, it looks like it would be really cold because it's so far north on the Olympic Peninsula situation there. Right. But, like, it is so nice and temperate it doesn't even rain that much it has constant year-round 12 months a year tourism like yeah. and then i, I went mean, on this bird watching trip busier during the summer but yeah but even in the winter there's just like germans out there because they know because they have like tour guides out there well, well i'm sold trust me because like it's foresty and cold like germany well you've got like like in the That's, spring yeah. and summer, you've got <laughs> oceans of fucking flowers. Like it's a huge, it's, it's kind of like, uh, like what's, uh, not Amsterdam. What the fuck? Anyway, it's, it's like, uh, Sweden. No, God damn it. Anyway, it's, it's got a shit ton of like, they grow a shit ton of tulips and lilacs, lilacs and, uh, is really beautiful because you've got the Olympic Mountains in the background. You've got the Puget Sound right there, offshore you islands. Holland? Yeah, yeah the air you. is amazing. Fuck, that took someone. There's long great enough. seafood, affordable seafood. Yeah, dude, I'm sold. And you, you do have like better deals on real estate. If I think if you really look hard, but they're few and far between now compared to like back in the day when I considered the idea. You know. Because it caught on. People realized, you know, there's advantages up there. It's the only thing, the only drawback to me is uh, getting to any major metropolitan area for, like, work kind of thing. Stuff. It's real easy to get to, to like, just ferry over to Seattle from Port Townsend. I think that's a pretty long fucking ferry You can ferry, ferry your car. It's like a How do you get mail out? Will we have to also go into no, a... No, Port Townsend area? is, like, not on an island. Port Townsend is, like... It's a yeah. major port of the, like, of the peninsula. huge, huge ships go out of there. Yeah. And, like, there's so many good fucking little food places at the, uh, at the port that have outdoor seating that you can hang out with, with your dogs. All right, you know the Carby. Ferry. 
BK, there's one dogs. town in spe specifically in that area. It's further south of Port Townsend, and it's kind of got this Norwegian, Swedish kind of thing going on. You know what I'm talking about? I think it starts with a P, or there's a P in the in the name of it. Puget? No, no, no. Do you mean okay. Leavenworth? No. The German town? No. I don't know. Leavenworth. Right. Port Angeles? No, no. No, it's like it's pretty small, but it's uh I looked into that town specifically because I found out it has like incredibly fucking low crime uh strategically like location. It's it's solid. But anyway, otherwise I was gonna mention like Kingston. <clears throat> like if you wanted a much faster ferry ride to and from the Seattle area, Kingston goes to Edmonds, I believe, north of Shorecrest, which is just northern Seattle. I mean, if you could find a better yeah. deal there, that would be very, very easy. Like, your lifestyle would be great. Those ferry rides are nice as long as you don't have to rely on them, uh, you know, as, as entirely, you know. And if they're, like, kind of short. Because, I mean, ferry rides are like, oh, this is enjoyable the first couple times. But if you're doing it every fucking day for work, it probably gets fucking old fast, you know? Yeah. Guys, here's a t-shirt I just saw. It says, good sex, no stress. One boo, no X. Small circle, big checks. <laughs> That's too much typography. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. Um, wait, what state are we looking at again? Oregon, Oregon, Oregon right okay. now. But I mean, we also Washington. have Virginia. Virginia. No. So Oregon, Washington, Virginia, of course. Um, I think Washington's more affordable for you. Get more bang for your buck. That's very true. Well, Virginia I and some really... places too. Yeah. Well, Virginia. I just mean compared to Oregon, but yeah. 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 Um, I really like this idea. Are you positive we will not go down with California when the fucking fault line goes? Yeah, what about New Positive, York? motherfuckers. When all the, the buildings sinking into the fucking ocean, Danny. Well, luckily, I'm on fucking Long Island. Uh, so let me bring... Oh, no, sorry. No, no, I'm just, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm just bringing this up right now because there's no audience. I feel like no one's going to come at me for being a blood-sucking capitalist. Yeah. Um... Hakeem, this investor yeah. that it, he's like legit, like super fuck. He's he's got real money. He's not yeah. he's not a full of shit investor like so many are. Um, yeah. And he's got these slot machines. And I know you said you've seen a lot of these game rooms. Yeah. Uh, or uh, can you find out what they're called? What they're calling the machines? If you go in and like spend twenty bucks, I'll cash up you twenty bucks. Oh my god! You're asking me to gamble. Tell me how the slot machines were. Uh, look, you know what? I'll subcontract them. Cool. Do that. So okay, so oh, find yeah. out what the machines found out what the machines are called. Because so, are you thinking about finding places to place machines? Well, it would just be like breadcrumbs that would help me do research for this dude. No, that's cool. fine. Uh, BK, the yeah. town I was thinking of is Paulsbo. Uh, I don't know if you've oh, ever heard of that, but it's the thing is, it's a small town, but it's directly connected by road and bridge to uh, Bainbridge Island. Bainbridge Island has a ferry that goes straight to downtown Seattle. That's what's sweet about that. 
but it's obviously it's way less expensive than Bainbridge Island, which is like full of millionaires and shit. But you still have all the advantages. Oh, I see it. You still it's an inlet. It's protected, you yeah. know, from the you know the the harsher weather of the Puget Sound. It's it's got low crime. Uh, yeah, I really believe that like the world's tourists are largely going to come to Washington, like that part of Puget Sound, like in the future to do their because it it does it's got the trees, it's got the water. People are going to come and do like boating and like so there's lots of opportunity to like build a tourist adjacent build oh, a yeah. business. And for, shit. for years, I've been saying if if they had better weather, I mean it would be the that would be the biggest city in the United States, no question by now. Like, the weather's always getting better. Like, there's few, there's less and less rain every year. Hmm. No shit. That's interesting. But, uh, for whatever reason, this was years ago when I looked into the area. Um, Paulsbo and Kingston really to me. Um, there, there, it wasn't just, like, the, the beginning of the living on a boat idea, in which case both are still relevant. It was other factors that were considered, you know, like if I, what if I just lived there, you know, um, without the boat? Because I like the Seattle area. I lived there for a year. Um, and I took, a, when a friend visited me, uh, I took a, a ferry from Mukilteo to Whidbey Island. And I loved it. It's a really short, really soothing, picturesque ferry ride. And then you're on this island, and it's it's so cool. It's got this Twin Peaks kind of fucking vibe. It's like all mysterious, and uh, it, it it just it felt like a mini vacation from the city. And you were pretty close to the city. There's there's another town I'll mention because it's on Whidbey Island. While I'm talking about it, uh, Oak Harbor. Mm, I but see that's it. Further up the, the Whidbey Island is pretty long. Oak Harbor is pretty far north. You know, but you're still, like, within reasonable driving distance of Seattle if you had to. And then what? I think, was it Bellingham is relatively close at that point? That far north? At the Emerald Queen Casino in Tacoma. Yeah, to me, there's nothing appealing about the Tacoma area. Yeah, it smells like, it smells like yeah, butt. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> into it, you know. But if you found a good deal, a good deal is a good deal. Exactly. Exactly. Because I honestly, the, when, the, the more you say low crime, I'm thinking high prices. Um, and honestly, bring on the crime because people are going to be more scared of us than no, no, no. we're going to be scared when of When I'm talking anyway. about low crime and I'm pointing out an area, I'm never talking about an expensive area because I'm poor. I, there, nothing about me is interested in wishful okay. thinking. Like I was seriously make, like taking everything into consideration. Yeah. You know. Dude, even Tacoma has nice areas. I mean, All have right. you guys seen uh, I, 10 Things you. I Hate About You? Clarifying. You smart as a whipper. Whatever they call you, call that. Yeah. Who has them? Mm. Oh wow! Um, Tacoma is 
heavily saturated. There is, it is a urban, urban area. It's a, what is this? My God, it, it, there's just so many houses packed on top of each other. Why? Yeah, I, I was thinking so- more like the Lake Cushman area would have a lot of opportunities. Like it's still affordable. People still only really go there in the summer. But like, <clears throat> that's on the 101, like the Olympic uh, National Forest Loop that goes through Aberdeen. Part of the reason people go through Aberdeen is because Kurt Cobain is from there. So there's constant tourism through there. Aberdeen is still really affordable. It's on the ocean. Um, it is kind of cold, I will admit. I'll admit that. Yeah, good. Cold. It's a lot colder than Port Townsend. I forgot Townsend. about Aberdeen. I did look at Aberdeen. Um, I was looking for rentals specifically because th- there's no, you know, sailboat opportunity. <laughs> like Aberdeen has a lot of opportunities, like little cottage houses, yeah. like two bedroom, one baths that are dilapidated and just need to be bought and updated kinda... by a motivated person. Per- like it's one of the rare places where you have ocean view or lake view houses that are still affordable and like, only an hour away from a place you'd want to be. Like, it's crazy how close Aberdeen is to shit, really. Um, but also, Hakeem, real quick, like, if you don't yeah. want to, like, put money into a slot machine, if you just find yourself hanging out there and, like, can no, ask listen, around. I'm, okay, I'm, yeah. Anything that, that, that can generate passive or somewhat passive income to fund all of this stuff is all fair game. I mean, if we can find a way to add value to this dude... Like, let me tell you where he, like, he was already, he's, like, one of the most competent business people I've ever met in my life. Like, and I've met a lot of really rich people when I was doing asset protection. Like, and I started to get the feel of, like, someone who really understands money and understands what they're doing compared to someone who just inherited a bunch of Burger Kings. Right. Like, (laughs) which is, like, how, that's most rich people, honestly. But, like, a lot of them are just sharp as fuck. So this guy is really sharp, even though I don't think he, like, went to college or anything. But he, like, was really good in the construction business. And he, uh, 13 years ago, like, a guy uh, got him to, like, build out a place for a little slot machine game room. And he was like, oh, shit, this is legal. And it was in Largo, Florida. Like, one of, had some of the, like... His little slot rooms were making so much money until he got shut down, like, three weeks ago. But he also got warning. It's not like he got, like, raided by a SWAT, a SWAT team or anything. I think it's because Ron DeSantis is running for governor is part of why it's happening now. But anyway, so, like, he, like, was, re- like, before that happened, the plan was that we were going to start a poker room somewhere. Like, he just had extra investment money. And he just started a whole bunch of kava bars in Florida. But since he got shut down and he lost all his slot machine income, he's, his only focus pretty much is, um, like, finding a place to put his slot machines before he's, like, ready to talk to me about starting a poker Excuse club. Um... But last I talked to him, he was like, well, I'm here. I heard that there's, like, a rumor through, like, friends of mine that talked to lobbyists in Virginia that, like, shit is going to get legalized in Virginia, like, any minute. Bro, there are giant casinos here already. Like, fucking 
they're giants. Well, like, but the thing is, is, like, like, there's, like, Fox, like, sometimes, okay, so here's the thing with casinos. There's, like, several different, like, ways to legally open a casino. There's being on a reservation and having those kind of permits. And then there's, like, like, obviously Nevada. And then there's other casinos that are, like, usually connected to racetracks that usually call themselves, like, paramutual or, um simulcast and they have and they're usually connected with like an old dog track or a horse track and then they've just been like well no one wants to stop printing the money off this shit because the local economy depends on it so we're gonna they're, build out a whole casino even though no one bets on dogs anymore what they're building um that uh, we nassau county long island is gonna get a casino where we have a bell it's called belmont racetrack that's where they're gonna yeah. put it I think they're taking down the racetrack, though. Yeah, that's what's happening everywhere, except for, like, Kentucky, where it's so cool to, like, you know, bet on dogs or whatever. But so, like, but yeah, over the last five years, just super low-key and quietly, casinos are just getting, like, full-blown legalized. But in order to open, like, your own casino with your own slot machines usually takes, like, being part of a private equity firm that has the money to pay millions of dollars for licensing so like the the but also what's happened is that it's like what you described where you're seeing people like just in these small slot rooms that are next to a 7-eleven or whatever like that's what was happening in florida for 12 years that's what was happening in texas for the last 12 years but what everyone is like morphing into is like getting rid of those game rooms and then like a tap and then having it go through the state lottery and having five slot machines per bar or per like restaurant, usually just a bar. But I don't know, like maybe Virginia is like still going to have this gray area situation for a while. And if I can research it and find a way for this, for his name's Mark, for Mark to feel, um, you know, safe enough doing it. And if he feels like we, you know, if that I brought, brought it to him like not only is he going to give me a huge kickback maybe even a small percentage for you know like like a big a a giant finder's fee but it'll also be like okay now we can start it's opening to starting like anything he's got grandkids and he wants to like build a huge dynasty and everything and he's also like really cool um like his assistant was like couldn't find me on the internet, so he called me up one day and he was like, uh, "I mean, I th- I felt like he was really cool before this, partly because I saw that like he has relationships with his adult children and his grandkids, and like not everyone does, and like they seem to like him and like give him gifts that he has in his office and shit, and like his wife works with him every day, like you know, they his his very cool chill wife wants to spend all day every day with him was also like a big tell that he's cool." Um, and, uh, and he was like, yo, my, I can't find you on the internet. Like, do you exist? Is like, is this your real name? And then I like came out to him and I was like, oh, I used to be like legally female. <laughs> like how it like fell out of my mouth. And he was like, oh, I don't care about that. And like, like an old man. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I just have like super good vibes from him. I've just been like avoidant the last couple weeks because I just started to get well I was like really um like burnt out from the road trip in May and then 
he was like, well, I heard from this lobbyist, you know, see what research you can do. And there was just like not much research I could do without just straight up flying out there. And I just like blew through all my travel money. So, but I was like, well, if you want to send me out there and he was like, oh, we're not ready for that yet. We're still like in the research phase. But also since you're doing all this like real estate research, um, of course, it's a good idea. Natural extension might as well figure out as much as we can. Yeah. Like, usually with these with this stuff, it's it, it's like it has to be 1,500 feet from a residential neighborhood, which is another thing that's super sus is that these regulations for these gray area markets, like, pop up in all these states and end up looking kind of the same everywhere. Um. So it seems like it's the same people, like, coordinating it all, you know? Yeah. But, anyway. What What is, what needs to be within 1,500 feet, you said, of a church? Um, Like, but, if it, like, what I'm imagining is happening in Virginia, because, like, Hakeem said that he's seeing, like, rooms of slots, where it's not just, like, the giant casinos that exist, but also, like, just little slot rooms where people can smoke inside. Okay. Yeah. And um, those usually are, like, illegal on the state level, but the county has printed regulations and the sheriff knows about the regulations. Uh-huh. And, and those regulations usually include, like, being 1,500 feet from a church or residential neighborhood or a school. Um, or, like, it, does, it usually doesn't say, say church, but, like, whatever the, you know, yeah. religious whatever. Um so pretty much the community development agencies of the United States, of all the municipalities, are making the same the same uh, regulations for these little pop up casinos, little little itty bitty. Yeah, places. like Harris yeah. County has three million people in it, and this those, is CPA shit. This, That's this, what this, uh, is. this Those regulations were printed like nine years ago, and so it was definitely like come invest with all your, you know, and then there's like three yeah. different levels that tax it. And like, they give you a, a, a stamp for each slot machine. That's like very similar to like the stamps for actual, wow. uh, um, pinball machines. Like when you open an actual arcade, yeah. so they were actually called arcades in Florida. And when I met Mark, I was, um, trying to like sell these, um, dealerless poker machines. And, I was just going around to all the like legal casinos around Florida and I was just like Googling casino casino. And then finally one day on Google maps after like my third day in Florida, these little arcades started popping up and there were dozens of them until they got shut down recently. Um, and, and like they would say adult arcade, but like you'd never see a billboard for it. You'd never see a commercial for it. But if you happen to be in the strip mall, you might see like a little like jackpots here uh, open till 2 a.m. adults only, you know, and like if you already have a slot addiction, you just already know what all that means, you know, mm-hmm. which is a, a lot of people. And like in this rich area, he was right. His main location was right off a highway. And like. So he was just easily grossing 20K a day and like. Very little overhead, you know, just money printing machines. Yeah. I'm all about money printing machines. Yeah. Especially, like, when there's not much else to, like, 
there's not a lot of other ways to add value to people in the economy. Like, this is an exploitation economy, not a, like, let me fix your problems economy, you know? Yeah. Um, and no I choice. would like to be the person that's like, hey, Mark, like, when we can tell that someone has dementia or is, like, too messed up to play, like, let's be the better person, you know? Because also that'll be a good business practice you know, they'll come back to us when they're sober and have, or what I mean, I'll try to convince Mark that it'll be more profitable this way. Cause he doesn't really give a shit. He just like, let's make the most money possible. You know? <laughs> um, like when I was first trying to tell him about why I love poker so much, I was trying to, it's a way for people to enjoy gambling without having to lose a car payment. And he looked at me like, no, I want people to lose their car payments. What is wrong with you? <laughs> um, and he's like poker's so much less profitable than than slot machines because it is like it, it well, is, but anyway it's instant with the slot machines yeah there's no, there's no yeah it's not a game of skill it's even mm-hmm. though sometimes i think even in virginia they might be calling them in the more like legal like oh you can just have a few of these machines with your bar type situation and i don't even know if that's happening in virginia well they did the bar that i worked at for example they have like and many of the bars they have like one kind of slot machine like the digital slot machines on like the main bar on the front and then like, several of them have like smoking rooms where there's like three of them next to each other so they have them so how, so just one bar had how many machines do you think um, one of them I know has at least four, um, three in a row and run the room. And then like in another room, they have one like on the bar and then the bar next door, the one that I worked at has, um, you know, just one on the front bar and then one in the back bar. Yeah. What I'd love to convince Mark that we can do like a few different times, like, cause he's got like 300 machines right and now. And then they're in 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven has like three or four of them in a row in 7-Eleven. Like inside the actual 7-Eleven? Inside the fucking store. Like right by the front door. I mean, it's covered up by like a bunch of like signage and stuff like that. But once you go inside, there's slot machines. See, this is what's happening across the country where it's like, this is kind of a way to keep businesses afloat. Um, I know that a lot of people are ripping on people saying that like, oh, it's artificial. Like, what do you mean by artificial? Like, I mean that it's totally rigged and planned, not, not a free market. Where, like, all these businesses should be failing, but if they failed, then, minci- then municipalities would completely fail. And so it's like, right. what do we do? Well, let's let everyone have four slot machines. Yeah. So the problem that I'm, you know, the, the problem we need to solve for Mark that I think we can solve, especially because, like, you know. Is that... uh Especially we kind of, Beach. I mean, there's a lot of places that people do that. Yeah. Like, we might have to, if he's running into the problem with not being able to find a legal place to ever open a full-on little game room again, which I'm thinking might be the case in 2023 and moving forward, is that he'll only be able to put in, like, four or five at a time. So then, like, the dream is to be able to put in, um, like, four businesses so that they're all, like right around each other and it's like four different little like i've seen this in portland where there's four lottery bars and they can only have five machines each 
But since they're all right next to each other, it's kind of like the 20 machines are all kind of close to each other and it feels like a little casino. And they're, you know, the four eateries are on the outskirts of like the circle that you bought, right? So like that might be like the, if you can find like four little commercial properties or like four little spots, you know, or like a, a little strip mall that's near enough to people that have, make a little bit more than minimum wage. I mean, not more than minimum wage, but like near enough enough people that make like 50K a year or more <laughs> than like, that's kind of the. I'm constantly surprised by how many people I see in these bars every single fucking day. And there's <laughs> this, this whole town that there are people in there and they're buying, they're spending at least 50 bucks, 150 bucks a night on drinks alone. And then they're buying food. You, you 50 times fucking 30 days is a hundred is uh fifteen hundred dollars you know what i'm saying it's like it's insane yeah yeah and if you have no one to talk to then you're gonna sit down at one of those machines because what else are you gonna do? go home oh it's so dark dude even people who have people to talk to i know this one girl who works <laughs> yeah. at the bar sierra and her boyfriend works there with her and every single time i go in there they're dropping like 50 to 100 bucks in these machines of their tip money. Yeah, I know. I know all about that, that life, <laughs> working at the casino. Yeah, so people are doing it uh -oh. on a regular basis, dropping 50 to $100 a night on those machines. <clears throat> Right. But we can be we can be more ethical about it than the next person who's going to do the exact same thing. You know what I mean? Like, we're just kind of in a race to figure out where we can put these machines, and like, if we can help, if we can help Mark place them faster than like, um, like he didn't he doesn't have a lot of people like walking into his life off offering to help. You know, like he found yeah. his assistant like earlier this year. By, like, going on Indeed and, like, you know, she's cool. She's smart enough, you know what I mean? But it is really, like, he, he, I'm sure he would love to meet a person like you who's, like, trying to learn about business and, like, excited to invest, excited to start businesses, like, excited to find the creative ways to, like, make people hang out around these machines. Yeah. Especially okay. if... People are doing it here en masse. Everywhere I go, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, this was when I left the country. They're in 7-Elevens, and they're all over the place, in the bars, everything. Are there ever, um, like, do you ever see them more than five machines at a time? Like, do you ever see a whole room of them? Um, that I don't recall. I mean, but... I've never been into the casinos, but I know that people just go. I mean, I drop pe drop people off there all the time. Um, but as far as be there being rooms with more than, no. Except there's this one arcade on the beach that has, like, maybe six or seven machines in a corner. Like, it's a kid's place, but they have this one little spot blocked off. Uh -oh. And, and it, there's, like, five or six, six, well, like, six, maybe seven machines in a corner in an, arc in an actual arcade like it's a family arcade but there's a 
section that you don't really see that has them. And I saw it, and I was like, oh, that's weird. I never thought of it because I don't gamble, so I don't... I didn't Dude, I would not even mind running a family arcade. Like, I was talking to this investor in a... This, like, casino owner in Colorado, in Blackhawk, Colorado, and he said that the owners of the uh, little kids' arcade in Blackhawk are crazy rich now from owning that place for a few decades, and that they own several thousand acres in Colorado, and are just off-ranching, not working, just having having a blast. And like everyone's looking for reasons to get their kids out of the house. I feel like arcades might might be a thing forever. Like I used to think kids arcades might not be a thing because like we all have consoles and phones, you know. No, but it's the thing about being outside and around other people, getting out of the house. People still want to do that, believe it or not. Yeah. Especially on vacation. Mm. If you're in a vacation town. You just want something to do. But yeah, like, I, I can, like, Mark has enough investment capital to, like, create a whole scene somewhere. Like, one of the ideas we have, like, if he can't find anywhere else, one of, like, the backup strategies is to try to open up a game room in Amarillo or Lubbock on, um, like, a big ranch with cabins and shit around a lake. So that it's kind of a destination to get people to come out to because the only places where it seems like we can still do it are just way out on the farm. Yeah. But, you know, if we if it can be like, a, hey, we've built this we've built up this whole thing. Come there's, you know, you can just jump on a kayak on this lake. You can pick up a fishing pole. You can just hang out by the fire pit like it's a scene. And there's slot machines and poker or whatever, you know, like that's kind, that's the idea. But I'm all for it, man. But if if it's going to be like a free-for-all, it's really legal somewhere like Virginia or North Carolina, then that's more appealing than doing it like gray area. Maybe this is legal. Maybe we'll get shut down in Texas. Of course. I mean, it's always better to know that you're going to have a place where you can stay for you know, a long time. And right. And not be interrupted. You have not have your revenue interrupted. Yeah. So that's like, that's the situation at this point. Um, All right, back to the boring shit. I'm going to read a little bit. Good. I'm glad that uh, you you shared all of that because um, it's important. The, The one thing that I know is because I've been just looking into these things for a very long time is that Dan Kennedy, one of the marketers that I studied and was part of his inner circle group, talks about that, you know, entrepreneurs don't just do one thing. You know, he, he's, he's built practices for dentists and chiropractors, and one of the things that his chiropractors have done is they, once he teaches them how to build a successful chiropractic practice, um, they package up the strategies and techniques and everything that I did and turn it into a course, and then they travel or they sell it on. a year in, in chiropractic, you know, and so these things have popped up all over the place, and he was so pretty much singly respons- solely responsible for the boom of all these chiropractic, chiropractic offices that popped up everywhere, so, um, 
you know, you don't just put all your eggs in one basket. If you can have little things like slot machines or game consoles or even fucking gumball machines that are throwing off money passively to you, there's no reason not to do it. It's just, it's part of, that's what they call a portfolio. Put it in a portfolio. All right, so this next section is about the architect. Architect. And then, uh, of course, you guys can chime in whenever you want. Danny? Oh, I'm right here. You got some bars to spit or what? Nah. Okay. All right, here we go. Spitting blanks. All right. Architect. First of all, special thanks to Greg Zimmerman and Chris Ilg for sharing their knowledge on the subject. Architects are critical members of every real estate team because they have the ability, like no one else, to provide creativity, innovation, and magic that can transform an ordinary property into a showpiece. They also have the ability to create a lot of expense that sometimes isn't needed at all. Good architect partners understand that while they may have the ability to turn a property into a project that provides accolades and acclaim, the project uh, objective... not even be all that rewarding to do, but sometimes that's the nature of the project. And although the design work might be mundane, it can deliver a big payoff for the investors, and that is anything but mundane. While it's more fun to redesign an apartment building to create exciting loft living environments, a profitable cash flow positive project may require only that the architect figure out how to fit a washer and dryer in each existing unit. This is actually one of the biggest challenges faced in the apartment industry. The trend is away from common area laundry rooms and architects are challenged to make washers and dryers work in small spaces. Design professionals are a lot like physicians or attorneys. They specialize. While there are excellent neurosurgeons out there, you don't want the neurosurgeon performing your heart surgery. Say living in divorce court isn't the one you want handling the financial complexities of a real estate transaction. Just the same, you don't want the architect who designs million-dollar homes designing your mini-storage investment property. You want the architect who can design those structures in his or her sleep. But the biggest reason why you want to work with experienced, specialized architects is because they know the ins and outs. National and local codes change almost daily. Only architects and their firms can keep up with it all. Even the slightest revision to any of the several codes could have a serious impact on a design. As an attorney, I have seen too many investors' projects get caught up in the complicated codes and laws of building, remodeling, and restoring a property. It wastes a lot of time and can get messy. It's never easy to fight City Hall, and with the right architect, who knows the laws and regulations you should not have to. Let me elaborate on the word experience. Architecture is a lifelong endeavor, and it is not unusual for an architect to required to guide the client through a highly specialized project. It's not necessarily just the design aspects that I'm talking about. It's the peripheral know-how that cannot be learned in school but can come only from doing things like working through the political process. Working positively and effectively with federal, state, and city employees is a honed skill that only comes over time. And let's not forget the value of a keen sense for anticipating market trends. After all, the work you are hiring from an architect may be happening today, but it needs to be valued by customers for years to come. 
little box sidebar here says experience is everything. When you work with an experienced specialized architect partner, you reap the advantages. Point. Design moves along quicker. Point. There is not a steep learning curve. Point. You get a completed design that works with fewer surprises. Point. Plans, although custom, are somewhat field tested. Point. Building is smoother because the plans have commonality. He knows the ins and outs of building codes. Continuing, once you interview and select your architectural firm from these perspectives, you can also look at other important requirements like working relationship and costs. I won't elaborate too much on the fact that regardless of how skilled the architect, if that person can't work with a team or with you, you need to keep looking. Relationships are everything, particularly when it comes to the architect. Too often the designs the design side of the project can put off the trades side of the project by being overly demanding about aesthetics and not being open to finding reasonable solutions that don't compromise the look and function of the project. It's extremely important to have a strong and collaborative working relationship between an architect and the general contractor. Forcing the architect or the general contractor to work with an architect or general contractor that they don't work well with leads only to trouble for the property owner. When it comes to money, <coughs> exactly what you are hoping to achieve, your objectives, and how you would like to achieve them. I want to stop here for a second. Um, this is what I mean about some of these little gold nuggets earlier. Um, we read, I read in the section that says, one of the biggest challenges, while it's more fun to redesign an apartment building to create uh, loft living environments, a profitable cash flow project may require only that the architect figure out how to fit a washer and dryer in each existing unit. Um, when I was helping to uh, clean um, my ex-girlfriend's house, for example, one of the big things was that the washer and dryer was in a kitchen and it was ugly and it took up a lot of space. And so I figured out how to take down a wall and move them into a closet and reroute the plumbing and tubing for the, so that it was out of the way and they had a nice little laundry room. And so he said that the trends are, um, what did he say? The trend is away from common area laundry rooms and architects are challenged to make washers and dryers work in small spaces. So I know that from first. Continuing. So these were about these gold nuggets. Like even though a lot of this stuff is probably above our pay grade at the time, so to speak, it's good to know it because every once in a while something might stick out to you that you have experience with or that you've seen before or that just makes sense. All right, and it's just good to know because then you'll know, oh, hey, I heard that from uh, this book or from doing a study group. Okay, continuing. Share your budget for both the design aspects of the project and for how much you plan to put into the building process. You must be concerned at this point with the architect's fees, yes, but also the cost to build out the architect's design. Again, having been involved in many real estate projects, I have seen architects create designs that are simply too costly to build under the predefined budget and profitability constraints. Those are severe mistakes that can cost time and money. Architects and contractors must communicate to avoid these kinds of problems. The better the information that you give the architect up front, the more accurate his fee proposal should be. Understandable, it is difficult to have a handle on every issue surrounding a project. Things do come up that are unexpected. But there are always way, but there are ways to protect yourself a bit from costs getting out of control. First of all, you may want to begin your working relationship with an architect by putting together an agreement for the due diligence and preliminary design slash consulting work. There is nothing wrong with doing this, and as long as both 
you and the architect understand that further work is contingent on the success and outcomes of the preliminary work, you may find this is the best arrangement. You can implement this kind of arrangement with either a phased contract or better yet, a time and materials contract. between an owner and an architect. You can find this form on the internet when you search AIB181. It may serve as a good reference for you. The benefits of this arrangement is that you can move forward without huge commitment and no real idea of what can be done. That's handy because most likely at this point you won't have much idea of what can be done. That's why you need the architect. The benefit to the architect is job security. It's nice to know that if the due diligence is favorable, all further work, including time, designs, and working drawings will be developed in his or her office. That also is excellent incentive for the architect to work harder to find feasible design solutions that fit into the budget for the project. If he or she wants more work, then they'll make the project work. I've seen this approach work well quite often. One minor but important point is that the services you contract with the architect may require the services of other consultants. I recommend contracting with them directly to maintain knowledge and control over the outside service provider's work and progress. Assuming the project moves forward and you and the architect have ex executed the contracts, the next phase is all about communication. The best, most efficient projects I've been associated with have been ones where the design team holds weekly meetings and provides progress plans and updates for review. With so many moving parts to any design project, keeping everyone informed is always a top priority. When well executed, it speeds up the process and delivers far better outcomes. Once the design and development phase is complete, the construction documents get underway. At this point, it is the architect who should control the consultants and keep the attorneys and lender informed of all progress. As a ringleader for the design and construction side of the project, all information needs to funnel through the architect to maintain control and ensure that no deviation to the schedule, scope, and of course, fees are made without his or her knowledge. overwhelming but that's why I like what BK was bringing in here there's like smaller streams of revenue that are um, that are going to be necessary in order to fund making these things go because when you're not having to be concerned so much about what your income is and if you have extra to put into savings or an investment account to be able to use for further purchases or things that come up along the way then it makes these things more possible so that's why I think everybody should be if not already open to all of these different smaller income producing opportunities all right <clears throat> we're all going to be pigs PIGs passive income generators moving on civil engineer civil engineers are frequently hired by your architect they are responsible or determine if and how to upsize the capacity. American Land Title Association surveys are part of this process and as is obtaining a will serve letter from the utility provider which legally obliges it to serve the particular project with utility service. Civil engineers are also responsible for such things as drainage, grading requirements and in cases where canal irrigation is involved that too. Your architect will inform you when and why a civil engineer is needed for a project. Your architect will review 
design can will review all contracts for service from not only civil engineers but all related design consultants and I recommend you allow your real estate attorney to review these documents as well solely from a legal perspective by contrast the architect will review them to make sure the intent of the design is being met and to look for gaps and overlaps with the goal of a seamless scope and given them the go-ahead. Often these contracts contain contingencies or line items in them that are part of the contract, but which could be separately executed or deleted as needed. Your attorney and architect can point these out, but be aware that if these contingencies are executed in the course of work because of requirements in the field, they can and often will cost you more money. In my experience, civil engineers are not known for adding on unneeded services, but rather omitting services, and it is very difficult as a property owner, particularly if you have not been doing this work for 20 years, to know what the civil engineer should have done until there's a torrential rain and you find half your parking lot is submerged in a murky brown puddle. Then you know more work should have been done regarding drainage. These things happen. The challenges a civil engineer can solve go beyond the concrete world of grading, utilities, and drainage my clients that they find civil engineering firms with a lead engineer or representative who is not only knowledgeable of civil engineering but knows how to walk the corridors of a of city hall political savvy is a huge value added advantage knowing the people who matter and then presenting your case before city officials and a crowd of interested citizens without acting and sounding like a civil engineer is a real ace card to hold The three most common pitfalls with civil engineers. One, delivering in a timely manner. Two, plans that do not have sufficient detail to match existing utilities. Three, plans that fail to adequately take into consideration the property's topography as it relates to water retention and drainage. Overcome these problems by holding your civil engineers to incentivized timeline timetables and have your engineer, architect, and your contractor review the drawings with all professional surveyor. We've all seen surveyors standing in the middle of the street gazing through their transits and taking measurements of the ground. This information is precisely what makes property owners and lenders sleep well at night, knowing that the properties they're considering during the due diligence phase are all they have been stated to be. And best of all, they report this information with a very official document that bears all the appropriate seals and certifications. It's the real deal, and it becomes a matter of public record. So what exactly are surveyors looking for and looking at through those tiny site scopes? When it comes to most projects, they are confirming or establishing the following. Point. Easements. The surveyor is designating or verifying the access into and out of the property. Point. Dimension and location of property. The surveyor is looking at and marking the property lines to determine the property's exact size and location in respect to other properties. Point. Encroachments. The surveyor is looking at the property lines and determining if any structures belonging to another property are within your property line. or yours within theirs. This can affect the appraised value of a property and cost money to remediate. <laughs> I, can't, I can't look at you guys in the comment section. 
Lo point, location of all buildings and improvements. The surveyor is determining the exact placement of all buildings and improvements within the land parcel to assert that they are placed as specified and that they are within. The surveyor is determining the exact placement of any non-vehicular access easements like pedestrian walkways that may exist on the property. These can impact building improvement and building placement plans. Point. Traffic calming measures. The surveyor is looking at and indicating or planning the location of traffic calming improvements such as speed humps, median plantings, etc. that slow traffic and improve the environment for residents, pedestrians, and bicyclists. Of course, every project dictates what your surveyor will need to do, and every piece of land brings its own unique needs, too. In the mountainous, boulder-ridden terrain of Arizona, a state with strict laws related to indigenous plants and natural formations, surveyors indicate the location of every giant sagaro cactus and every palo verde tree and any rock outcroppings that are to be preserved as natural space. There are a lot of reasons for this when you think about it. One is ownership. Who is responsible to care and maintain the gap area? A second is liability. Are both owners, one or neither, responsible for a mishap that may take place in between property lines? Another is property value. It can be really expensive to buy a small piece of land that your project may need in order to be compliant with development requirements related to setbacks, ingress, and egress, etc. Remember, just because you may need additional land to complete your project does not mean that your neighbor has to sell it to you. Hazardous Substance Site Assessment Engineer. This is a professional you want to bring on very early in the due diligence process because if he or she finds there are hazardous substances on the property, you may want to rethink everything. Your lenders will insist upon it. You simply must know the status of the property in terms of hazardous substances. There have been too many cases where, and these are the worst kind, entire housing developments have been built in areas that were later found to be toxic. Love Canal in New York is one of them. Cases that are far less dramatic but still incredibly expensive are those where a hazard exists but can be remediated. You never want to find yourself responsible for the first scenario. It is actually quite difficult given the law and requirements for development and redevelopment today. But in the event of the second case, which is more likely to occur, at least know what kind of remediation costs you are in for. She didn't have one, uh, Pedro. She didn't yeah, have she a... didn't. Maria didn't have a show. Yeah. Yes. His property. Well, not the property. He owns his house. Um. Just wondering, has it? Could, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the size of it. Um, I don't know if he'd even be comfortable talking about this yet, but like, uh, maybe, um, cause I don't, I, I think he, I think he was also talking about purchasing the house next door to Um, do you think, 
um, you guys would want to talk to him also. Well, what specifically would be the purpose of that? To build or to put the co-op if he'd want to be a part of it too. Where, where does he live? Uh, he's in PA. Okay. I'm yeah. just saying as like, um, if you if, like to talk about it with him, just, just to have it, the idea in the open, maybe. Yeah, PA is a garbage state, truly. Well, there is a, um, there is also a house that's been vacant for years that is directly behind my sister's house and we were also thinking of acquiring that property and extending hers um into like yeah. making a big family you know yeah yeah compound like big big love yep yeah. danny so, were right. you talking about uh bob considering buying like the other half of this duplex Oh, he's in a duplex. Um, well, I'm assuming. I thought that's I'm what he was sure. saying at some point. So I'm not sure if it's a duplex, actually. Um, I'm I'm imagining a single-family home, honestly. I thought um, he was talking about a duplex. And he was considering buying I'm, the other one just because, I don't know, it would be efficient okay. right next door. Easy. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I heard. I don't know. I, I wasn't paying really close. Yeah. Both of us, both of us might have actually misheard it. That's all. But he definitely owns, he definitely is a homeowner that I know. And he If I could just tell one civil engineering story that I think um, can highlight the problem if you don't check in with a civil engineer or you don't check up on what they're doing, because here's what happens, especially in larger projects. So the whoever the main contractor is, the head of the project, right? I'm sure you have a word that you guys have been using for that person, right? Well, the head contractor uh, on a well, project. Well, there's contractors, there's architects, and. Um, uh, but there has to be one person who's kind of in charge of the whole thing, right? Yeah, but, but go ahead with your story. What, what, are, what are you saying? Now? So, so what happens is that people, whoever's whoever the main contractor is who's in charge of getting the project done, the one that you, if you're the owner, you're going to be meeting with, that person will usually subcontract to get a civil engineer in some of these other positions, an architect, if they don't have them in their firm. There's firms that they have like real estate attorneys and they have architects and they have civil engineers. But if, you, but if you're doing that, so the subcontractor gets their job by bidding and they'll bid low to keep to get the job slow and so they might skip certain things and this is what happened in one um, housing development in Houston where they skipped a really important 
um, surveying and the first time it rained, the entire housing development was a lake six feet deep because they had fucked it up and they hadn't really looked at the history of the location or anything. And in my own town, the civil engineers that were hired to help plan the evaporation pond for a, um, a desalination project, uh, which was plant they were building this um evaporation pond and they didn't bother with some of the really important measurements so two years later when there was a hard rain and what happened was something that anybody who lived up san simon creek road could have told you was going to happen which is that the rain will sheet across the road and go straight into that property there was flooding and major fines because there shouldn't have been any flooding going into the evaporation pond, which had wastewater that was designed, you know, it, it, the whole thing was fucked. Yeah, and that's the district actually, got screwed up because that's of actually it. one of the things that um, we read in the book. I don't know if you heard it. Right. No, I heard, I did hear that. I'm just yeah. providing some additional kind of shocking stories. So people don't forget that it is an important thing and making sure you're not missing as we go through and everybody that we talk to because due diligence is definitely very important. Well, I'm also pretty sure Amanda's on the team. Hey, Amanda. Welcome to the, welcome to the fold. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. Okay. When selecting an environmental engineer, begin by finding one who is fully accredited in the field. And just remember to just, uh, uh, just repeat this, that um, Everybody, of course, we're not super sponges, so we're not going to remember all this stuff um, at, you know, all the time. But going over it, like I said, there's going to be golden nuggets that you pick up every once in a while, like certain things like that, like that shocking story about flooding a whole fucking structure, you know, or like this other place that they were talking about where it stank a foot into the ground and different things like that. So um, you'll always, these, some of these things will stick out and everybody will remember something different more strongly than the other and then you know, the when when we're speaking and communicating uh, and talking to people, negotiating this and that, something might come up where you might say, hey um, this, this should be considered, so um, anyway, take mental notes or physical ones, because it's going to be a wild fucking ride we're probably going to blow something up alright so having a trustworthy relationship with your mortgage banking professional is also key. Um, the mortgage banker will know which environmental engineers are responsive and familiar with the reporting requirements of a broad spectrum of lenders. The lender may have a list of preferred out of the borrower's hands. It is also important that while your environmental engineer is thorough so as to identify actual existing recognized environmental conditions, he does not create unnecessary work by requiring more extensive phase two reports. During due diligence, you must contract what is called a phase one hazardous substance site contamination study. Among the many things the inspector looks at, he or she will perform a visual assessment of the site and surrounding properties, interview the owner, neighbors, occupants, and take a look at the site's history. The goal is to determine if any hazardous materials were ever manufactured, stored, or dumped there. At this stage, the inspector doesn't take any samples. By the way, 
Um, surprisingly enough, I'm very, very familiar with this process because I did a huge analysis of a bunch of different properties and contacted the, the Environmental Protection Agency and the local ones here in Virginia. They actually are the EPA and the associated organizations in the because there are certain properties that you can get if you can start a project and you can get a lot of funding for it where there are sites that um, have uh, contamination that they say um, are, a th are a danger. So you have to, what they do is they assess the nature and the extent of the contamination and, and its uh, effect on on human health and the environment are what they are looking at. And then the project consists of, after the assessment is done, after you know the, the, the nature and extent, those are the two specific terms they use, um, and, it, and its threat to, uh, to human health and the environment, which are also the other term that's used, then you, uh, they set up what's known as uh, remedial team design plans, and you can actually set up entire, um, entire projects where you can get the site cleaned and, and uh, get it to a level where it's not a threat to human health in the environment and then use that structure to build and get it at pennies on the dollar. So it's very interesting stuff. Um, and it's good to see that this is in the book here. So um, story in, in just south of Cambria, the town of Cambria, there's an old Air Force base that was used for... Um, visual surveillance of the Pacific Ocean for Japanese mm, subs or ships or during World War II. And there's some really cool buildings up there. And of course it has spectacular 360 degree view all the way around going, looking toward the coastal mountains, looking toward the ocean. I mean, it's gorgeous, but everybody who's bought it hasn't been able to do anything with it because they found asbestos and asbestos re remediation is ridiculously complicated because you have to have people who are specially trained and certified or licensed, at least in California. I don't know if it's the same everywhere because I think it, it, asbestos is an EPA thing and not just a state environmental. Now, I think the feds have kind of taken that over so the remediation the property cost like two million dollars the remediation was going to cost like four million dollars they did some illegal remediation i.e they hired some homeless people to take it out you know they gave them some dust masks or whatever <laughs> and then they just put it in trash bags for the trash to pick up and waste management wasn't too happy about that so of course they reported them but you know, it's it's not nothing. Make sure you don't have there's there's not asbestos insulation or ceiling tiles. If you, depending on the age, if you're if you're getting a building that's older, because you don't want to have lead paint and you don't want to have any of that shit. I did miss the beginning, so I don't know what kind of project you kind of are focused on as you're listening to this. But just another illustrative story. Well, that brings to the next point, which says, 
Ideally, you will receive a clean Phase 1 report and not need any additional testing or a Phase 2 study in which the inspector takes samples of the discovered hazardous materials. This process can be costly and time-consuming because sometimes just getting the samples requires excavation and core drillings. So that stuff is covered in the Phase 1 uh, and possibly Phase 2. may have remediation responsibility should hazardous materials be found. In addition, they have a disclosure responsibility should they know of these hazards during a due diligence period. Lenders obviously are looking for a clean phase one report so that there is no drag on their ability to seize collateral and liquidate should the need arise. This action usually requires stepping into the chain of title and it's best if there are no obstacles due to a history of hazardous materials liability. Recently, engineers to prepare Phase 1 and Phase 2 reports have sought to limit the amount of their liability to property owners by having their engagement letter or contracts specify that damages are limited to the amount of fees paid to the engineer. Obviously, limitations of this nature do not afford the property owner the benefit intended when a professional engineer was hired to conduct the Phase 1 or Phase 2 investigation and report. <coughs> Moving on, and this we're almost done here. Escrow officer slash title agent. The more real estate deals you do, the more you will get to know your escrow officer slash title agent. This person acts as a neutral party who is attempting to carry out the express written instructions of the buyer, the seller, the lender, and in some cases, the real estate brokers. They review and verify all documents and pass the documents along with the funds between the appropriate parties in the transaction. They are there at closing. Again, my approach to this chapter is from a legal perspective. Where I have seen issues relating to this area is in title insurance. prior to the date of the policy. Coverage ends on the day the policy is issued and extends backward in time for an infinite period or an indefinite period. This is in marked contrast to property or life insurance, which protects against losses resulting from events that occur after the policy is issued for a specified period into the future. A title policy protects property owners and lenders from monetary losses that could result from ownership of a property's title, which may include fraud, liens against a property, or errors missed during the title search. Title insurance does not prevent loss of markability due to a title claim, and that is important to know if you're going to assume ownership of a property. In other words, a title insurance policy does not obligate the title insurance company to make corrections to your property's title if a problem is discovered. Rather, it, is, it simply provides a basis to receive monetary compensation for your loss at a maximum level specified by the title policy limits. I am frequently surprised by a real estate investor's willingness to accept a title company's offer to insure over a known risk because the title insurance does not cure the apparent defect in the title, which may come back to haunt the property owner in the future. The policy covers only the amount of the loan, so the policy's cost is based on this amount. It is best to obtain both a lender and owner's policy. The coverage extended to the owner is usually referred to as the ALTA policy, which must be based in part on a survey. ALTA is A-L-T-A.
The talent associated with escrow and title officers vary widely. For that reason, it is important to know who we are dealing with and their approach to solving problems. An effective escrow for all parties and is proactive. I am very loyal to escrow and title officers who I know have the capacity to close complex transactions in a timely manner. Unfortunately, I had to kiss a few toads in order to find folks who are keepers. Mortgage broker. Selecting your mortgage broker is one of the most important decisions you will make. They, you want to find a mortgage broker who, like the architect you choose, specializes in your area of investment. You may not know this, but the brokerage industry is a specialty business, and few brokers possess the ex expertise needed to serve all areas of the lending arena. I want a broker who is well-versed in not only the execution will facilitate the market telling you. Either way, you know because Sorry about that. This fly has been bothering me for a long time and I think I got him. All right. Um If your proposed product is not well suited to the market, your mortgage broker should tell you outright or will facilitate the market telling you. Either way, you'll know because the process will be arduous and most likely not well received by lenders. Almost anything can trigger lending difficulties. Perhaps the proposed project isn't right for the location, or maybe the location is right. research to ensure the project is on target. Any investor who comes to a mortgage broker without having done his or her homework and as a result made the proper adjustments to the plans and design will find the underwriting will stall and a loan will be next to impossible to attain. That's a failure by the investor. A failure on the mortgage broker side can, can happen too. A good mortgage broker should guide you to the most appropriate lending vehicle and steer you clear of the ones that are not in your best interest. Too often I have seen or heard of mismatches between a product and the type of loan terms, even when the product has qualified for that kind of loan. A mismatch can impact a lot of things, not the least of which is the pro forma of the property. It can also contribute to reduced profitability. A loan vehicle such as city, local, and federal funding have stringent, stringent requirements so their cost-benefit is questionable unless the fit is just right. Your mortgage broker should be very clear about every loan term so you can take full advantage of them and avoid the pitfalls. If there is something you don't understand, do whatever it takes to clarify it. You should also ask your mortgage broker what they know about tax credit, HUD financing, and related agencies, and ask them to relate to you the advantages and disadvantages of these, finan of these financing vehicles. Experience with them in addition to knowledge about them is a real advantage. The last thing you want is a mortgage broker who is learning on the job with your project. Look for a seasoned veteran. 
In the absence of a good mortgage broker partner, some real estate attorneys, I am one of them, also specialize in obtaining the most favorable financing vehicles available. It is a service we provide, and I am sure we are not alone. Given that your attorney is looking out for your best interest, he or she will analyze a loan for more than just interest rates and amortization schedules. He or she will read the fine print and the finer points to discover any possible ways a loan, because of its terms, could come back to bite you years later. Insurance agent. I won't go into big detail on this one except to make a few points. Have an insurance agent who specializes in real estate and development early on in the process to avoid easily avoidable pitfalls. The lender generally has the specific coverage required for your transaction. You should be able to rely on your insurance broker to easily interpret the requirements and deliver an insurance certificate covering the same within 24 hours. Over the years, as lending has become more oriented to packing loans as well as the limits that they believe to be appropriate. Your insurance agent should be able to provide you additional insight with respect to the suitability of the proposed forms of coverage, applicability of the proposed limits. There are probably entire agencies in your city or town that offer mostly real estate, construction, and development insurance. There are a number of things based on your project that will require insurance of one sort or another. Insurance is all about risk management, and the question becomes how much risk you want to assume versus if you should pay a premium to have someone else assume it. If you know in advance the type of insurance you will need, you can factor it into your project budget and determine if the project is feasible and will deliver a solid return on these added costs. If it won't, then you may want to reconsider the project entire, entirely. 1031 Exchange Intermediate Intermediary. Every time a client presents me with an opportunity to participate in an IRC Section 1031 transaction, I insist that he or she has his or her accountant run the numbers to determine the effect of paying taxes versus deferring the tax with an exchange. From my vantage point, the tax savings do not replace the need for strong real estate transaction for the replacement property. I believe you make money buying real estate, which is best demonstrated when you sell real estate. Many times investors are working on a project that will be part of a 1031 exchange. There's an entire chapter in this book about exchanges, but in a nutshell, a 1031 exchange occurs when you sell one property and purchase another property under the tax code 1031 and minimize or avoid paying taxes on the gain. Anytime a 1031 exchange is involved, you should have a qualified intermediary ex executed. The reason is simple. If there is any misstep with the procedures of the exchange, you will not qualify and you will end up paying the taxes you were trying to avoid. You want to know exactly how much the tax is and weigh the pros and cons of the exchange. A good test, in my opinion, is asking yourself whether or not you would go forward with the transaction if an exchange was not involved. In other words, would you still consider this property a good investment? Even if you answer yes to this question, I always make sure my client has discussed the exchange with me and his or her tax advisor so the entire plan can be viewed in light of the investor's bigger financial picture. There are also non-tax reasons for exchanges. Here are a few that you may not have considered. 
point exchange from a fully depreciated property to a higher value property that can be depreciated point exchange from non-income producing raw land to improved property to create cash flow point exchange to meet location requirements point exchange from a larger property to sell several smaller properties used to divide an estate among several heirs or for retirement reasons point exchange from a tenants in common interest in one property to a fee interest in another so what do you look for in a qualified intermediary exchangers must feel confident that the that exchange funds will be safe and available for the successful conclusion of their exchange it is best to hire a qualified intermediary that first to determine how the intermediary is investing funds it has on hands. Recently, a large intermediary was unable to fulfill its funding obligations because it had invested the bulk of its funds in auction rate securities, which became illiquid overnight. If you cannot understand the nature of the intermediary's underlying investments, then you should not let the intermediary hold your money. Second, be sure to obtain a written guarantee for the exchange of funds and finally verify that the qualified intermediary has fidelity bond coverage preferably preferably in the amount of 100 million professional 100 million dollars professional liability insurance and employee theft and dishonesty dishonesty coverage general contractors Nearly all real estate projects involve some construction or renovation and for that reason having a general no matter how well you think you can do it. If you are an investor, remain an investor. It should almost go without saying that you want to be very careful which contractor you choose. Your decision will greatly impact the quality of your project. You can get excellent referrals from your architect who may even recommend once recommend one one recommend one particular contractor. So uh, you can get excellent referrals from your architect who may even recommend one particular contractor. And if you have selected the right insurance agency in your city or town, the one that specializes in construction and does the bond work for all the contractors in town, you will be able to get some solid refer referrals from them as well. Other than that, you can ask your attorney, mortgage brokers, lender, and look around town at the projects that are currently underway. That will give you a good idea of which companies are the most reputable. No matter how tempting it is to go cheap and hire a small-time player for your small job, it is never a good idea to hire any contractor who isn't licensed and insured. As an attorney, I will never allow my clients to assume astronomical risks that they are assuming when working with a contractor or any tradesperson who is not licensed and insured. I think it is always a good idea to determine whether or not the general contractor can obtain a performance and payment bond. If you learn that the general contractor is unable to, perf to obtain a performance and payment bond, case if the general contractor is involved in its own development activities bonding companies will frequently shy away from the risk 
However, if the general contractor is not involved in development, then bonding companies should be more inclined to underwrite the risk associated with the general contractor's affairs. If a performance and payment bond is obtained, the general contractor will pass the cost on to the developer, which may be significant. Your general contractor is responsible for carrying out the design plans to the letter and for managing the trade contractors, subcontractors, who will actually do the work. Subcontractors actually do the work, do the work, do the work, do the work. All right, what the hell? How did I lose my spot here? Um, general contractors seldomly actually perform any of the trades themselves. They are simply very experienced project managers who know the process of construction and know the people and the companies that will get the work done. Pick a good contractor and you elevate your chances of having good tradespeople working on your project. You should look for general contractors who pay their subcontractors and material men in a timely manner and have a systematized manner of obtaining all as a result of the general contractor's failure to pay them in a timely manner. Ask for a list of references who are subcontractors from various trades and material men from various product lines. How do you know you have a good contractor? First of all, look at their previous projects. Walk through them. Is the quality up to your standards of excellence? You can tell by looking at finishes and details. If the details are shoddy, one can only assume what lies behind the walls hidden from view isn't much better. Second, and perhaps even more important, is ask the tradespeople, does the contractor pay them on time or is the company always running way behind on payment? This could be a sign of cash flow problems. Stay as far clear of that as you can. What you don't want is to have construction loan and end up in a completely different galaxy if not closely managed right from the time of the initial estimate. To set a price, you'll need a clearly defined budget, a clearly defined scope of work, and a clearly defined schedule. From my vantage point, I believe that folks starting out in the development should look to work with established general contractors who have obtained a performance or payment bond for the project. The additional costs associated with the performance and payment bond are substantially less than the potential downside construction risks that can cost you money. As an attorney, I am always concerned about risks, so here are a few that I have encountered which you'll want to keep within your field of view. It will save you money. Point. Poorly defined separation of functions between architect, engineer, and contractor. Point. Scope creep that causes a small project to become a big one based on change orders. Point. Project acceleration. This may be done as a way to provide an incentive for your contractor to complete your project prior to the original date for purposes of interest savings, favorable material pricing, or changes and deadlines for laws or regulations. Point. Poor working relationships between parties that cause a lack of collaboration inefficiencies. Keeping your contractors happy is pretty easy. 
Mostly, what they want is to be paid on time. They, in return, have subcontractors to pay, and paying them on time keeps their tradespeople happy. Pay on time, and you have a happy worksite. Contractors also tend to take great pride in the work that they do and feel a great sense of accomplishment bringing a building out of the ground. And finally, they value their relationships with owners, designers, and subcontractors. Work as a team. Keeping all these things in good standing, and you'll have a general contractor who will become a valued asset to your real estate investment business. That's it, and a few final words. All right. Any real estate project is all about minimizing financial risk, time risk, design risk, and quality risk. It's about choosing the right people to help you achieve this and working collaboratively along the way. If you are the type of person who seems to foster adversarial relationships, this will be difficult. That's not to say there won't be times when being tough will be required. There most definitely will be. You'll find as you go from simple projects to the more complex that your team will have to function at a higher level with greater cooperation and problem-solving abilities. In all instances and with every project, you can and let him or her do the job you deserve. Ways to learn more. Lotzar.com, that's L-O-T-Z-A-R.com. Charles W. Lotzar is the founder of Lotzar Law Firm PC, a diversified practice with representation of clients in commercial and real estate transactions, low-income housing, tax credit financings, administrative proceedings, and various forms of tax-exempt and taxable bond financings. A former senior partner in the national law firm Crew Tackle Rock, LLP, Lotzar is involved in all phases of real estate development, including debt and equity financing. Financing. He has extensive experience in dealing with public contracts and issues related to public officials, and he has been involved in bond financings that have an aggregated value in excess of $5 billion. That's it, Chapter 2. All right, we got through that. Chapter 3 that's going to be coming up next time, tomorrow possibly, is called Profits from the Ground Up. All right. We did it. That's good momentum there. Getting a second one down. All right, guys. Who's still awake? I'm, I'm still here. I'm listening and watering flowers. Nice. All right. <clears throat> I'm listening. I could not unmute, though, for some reason. It's all good. I think I think uh I think um I'm half listening while looking for boats. That's good, see? We're we're all uh getting our multitask on. So good. Looking for the boats, looking for property and other passive I've got a lap. I've got a lap cat sleeping on me. And you've got a cat sleeping on you. Uh, the slot machines idea from BK or the game machine and stuff like that. So so there's lots of different things. I'm recommending that at any time you can find some way somehow to bring in some to 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 balance out your income statement and or Put some things in your the assets column of your balance sheet, the better. 
Remember, assets bring the income in, liabilities put it out, and that's anything. It doesn't matter if it's people or property or anything else like that. If it puts money in, good. If it takes money out, well, find a way to balance that out with more income-producing activities. I know that's what I'm doing. And flying through some of this research and just getting an overview of this stuff is going to prove, I believe, uh, very beneficial in the future, just having at least heard, heard it um, so that it's not brand new. I feel like this book in particular is going to be a good thing to keep on hand with me all the time as uh, time moves on and moves forward, no matter who is involved or not, because um, one of the things... Anyway, all right, let's see, it's almost 7 o'clock over here, so that gives me a little buffer of time to deal with hey. some other things. What's up? Hey, Hakeem, did you get that thing straightened out with the Uber? Oh, yeah, that's taken care of. Oh, good, I'm glad. I hope in a, in, a, in a satisfactory way. Well, it was actually somebody trying to defraud me. It wasn't actually Uber. Right, I know. I know. I just wanted to make sure that you didn't get screwed. No, it's all good. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad. Yeah. That bastard should not be allowed. Yeah, I actually, because um, I'm crazy like that, I spent an hour contacting the FBI and reporting them to the International Cyber Crimes Division and gave them all the details. The phone number that they called me from and all that. I don't play around when people try to play with my money right now. Gotta be mercenary.
sometimes finding certain little things, like when BK was talking about the slots and the machines and helping this guy place them. Everybody should keep their eyes out for opportunities of all kinds, I think, because um, the, the ability to improve your position is going to go a long way. And like what BK was saying earlier, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to be compromised by anybody's opinion about calling me like a ruthless, soulless capitalist or anything like that because of what I want to do. Because right now in the situation, improving your position is one of the only things that is going to grant you the, the ability to do anything that's helpful. Because the, the, the environment right now is we're in a financial and economic war, a war of information a war of people who know how to do certain things that aren't letting certain people in on the game. And the more you study and learn the game and start to play it, that's exactly the way to go. And that's why I'm getting out into the field and doing everything, because the mind follows what the hand does. So Derek's looking at boats, like all that shit. What's up, BK? Yeah, you're... You're inspiring me to, uh, I've been telling myself for a whole week that I need to call Mark and be like, hey, I'm still really excited to help you. All with the research, but, uh, I'm still here if you need, you know, cause he hasn't heard from me in like weeks now. Yeah. Well, but that also, a good idea to rekindle that fire. Yeah. Cause you know. He likes me, so it's like, that's like, just making a relationship is such like lightning in the bottle, impossible shit. Like, if you have a relationship with an investor, like, <laughs> don't let it, don't let it die on the vine. Yeah, I mean, I think that nothing um, happens by accident. It's just that people don't take advantage of it because they feel like they don't have something to bring to the table to bring, to take advantage of something like that. But if, you know, if you can... And the, the thing is, is that being able to speak the language of these people is very important, or at least just letting them know how interested you are. And that, for example, um, you could consider that what we're doing here is a think tank, right? And that we're actually doing some serious research into exactly what we're going to be doing. And the fact that everybody on their own is, is going to take their own responsibility to improve their position, whether it's just through education and knowledge, um, or just making out and reaching, reaching out and finding contacts. You know, my, the one main thing that I'm doing is is doing analysis of these of 100 different properties in the next 90 days, starting in August 1st all the way through um, through October through November, and uh, and the fact that I've already assembled a team with my real estate agents. I have several of them. The staying in good good terms with the law firm and so on and so forth, and also getting pre-approved and, and talking to the lenders. So. Just learning the language and also not only that, staying involved, I think is a really good idea. Because we can talk about stuff all we want, but there are things that we can do even still remotely. Like 
there's one talking amongst ourselves about improving things and making stuff happen, and then there's another thing to start doing things like making relationships with attorneys and real estate agents and at least just talking to hear what people say to you. You know, like, for example, I didn't know that coming out to, to Virginia Beach that one of the things that's required um, when buying a home out here is that uh, it's best if you have two years of residence already in the state and two years of work history and things like that, or else it becomes more complicated if you don't do that. Now, it's more complicated for me because I working there for one year, like 10 months, but it's because it's the best thing I had to do. So me not having a job is... Um, is a good and a bad thing. One, it's good for me because of the fact that I have a lot more time to make money and make a lot more money doing what I'm doing and um, and and have that capital building up and putting stuff in savings. Um, and, I mean, there's not really a downside to it, but it's just that it's going to be a little bit more complicated with them verifying income and stuff like that through my, my various little ventures that I have going on. Because lenders, they want to see my income statement, which I don't have income now from uh, from a job. So that's why now I have to connect it to, to the balance sheet, which shows that I have a business, which is an asset, that's bringing money into my income column. So it's just like little things we have to work around. But my point is, is that I wouldn't have known that if I didn't initiate saying, hey, I need to buy property. Then I got told all this stuff. So it's those things that are in addition to um, us having a think tank here that will also expand our understanding and knowledge of the game. Hey, uh, out of those uh, towns in Washington specifically that I was uh, mentioning, I forgot to mention Everett. To me, Everett is a sweet spot. If you could find a good deal, it's a it's a quick hop on the interstate south to Seattle, roughly a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes at the most. Um, but there's plenty of job opportunities. The real estate is less expensive, or it was. Um, and coincidentally, it's got the, the massive marina at Port Everett, um, you know, but you, you've also got just, it's beautiful, you know, it's beautiful. So is it What's west that, or maybe? east, north or south of Seattle? North. north, about a half an hour north. It's an island also? No, no, Everett is just further up on the Puget Sound, just north of Seattle. Just but it's got a massive marina. It's less I expensive. I see it. I see it. All right. Yeah. And it's it's beautiful. You've got the Olympic Mountains that you can see across the a Puget Sound Station. to the, the, the west. You've got the, the Cascades to the east. You've got offshore islands. You've got quick and easy access to a big city. Yeah. You know, this is cool, too. This is a really prime location, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Show. And if you want to go the other way and get the fuck away from the city, that's pretty easy. Just go north, take a right at some point. Well, you're almost in Canada. Well, not almost, but yeah, in Canada, pretty much. Um, 
a, a like not really a meltdown, but she got really angry with the doctor's, with the office. doctor's office. Um, and her three, three. Like, what? Oh, not at me. At, at so. She was like demanding the pharmacist to find where this prescription is because the doctor said that they were sending it over and now she's here and my son has a, 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 a skin disease and he's, uh, he's got wounds all over him right now and I can't get through the weekend without giving him this, this ointment, blah, blah, blah. Like, and like, I felt her and she, I think, I think, I don't know what. Polish, Russian, Ukrainian, I don't know. Um, uh, but then she got on the phone with the doctor and then she was like, she started cursing and shit and you could hear like all the huffing and puffing on the line, you know? So I told her, good job. Good job, mom. I'm proud of you and I've had same issues. Don't worry about everybody else here. Just get the fucking white men. And that's it. Oh, man. Just get the fucking so. Good for you. Solidarity, you know? Such a dick So if you guys decide to get a house in Everett, then, then you could... I could get my boat, put it in that harbor, and then on the weekends you guys can swing by, visit your weirdo friend with the pirate flag on his boat down at the marina. We could go cruising on my my sweet yacht. Brady would like to to put on display his his opinion in whatever form possible. He's a fighter. Dude, you know what you should, you, you should do? You guys, you should uh, do what this one guy did. I, I saw some YouTube video like uh, two years ago. He bought some land cheap around Bellingham-ish area. Um, and then he constructed a, a bunch of uh, tree houses. And they're like really elaborate and they're actually really cool. I love this idea. I love this idea and I love Bellingham. It's not as crazy as it sounds. 
Probably making a shit ton of money on like Airbnb people that want to hang out in a treehouse and not have to build one. What do you mean? What what you guys should do, Derek? What, what, are, you, what are you just an outside observer? Derek. Wait, so there's like three houses you could rent? Uh, I don't know if he ended up renting them. Uh, this was years ago. I can't remember it too well. But uh, I think initially he, it's like kind of a big piece of land. And for whatever reason, the codes allowed him to build tree houses. He took advantage of that. He built one for himself, obviously. But then I think, I think he had people he knew come on the land and build their own as well. So, so what, what, what? It was, it was around Bellingham, I, I believe, Washington, north of, Bellingham. north of Seattle quite a bit, kind of, I think it's, it's like between, uh, Seattle and Canada, a little bit closer to Canada at that point, I think. Huh. Quite a what the hell? What, BK? BK, what is this? Hip, oh, hip Shoots a song. Hip camp, he said. Hip, hip camp. I think it's just because the earbuds I was using are the worst for this thing, and my uh, my trusty um, J Lab Go Work headphones are on the way out. So I put some good use into them, but they're falling apart. want them because he for some reason wants them like one of those mics that stick out this doesn't have that but it, it does have a mic to it it was $30 and they are the best headphones I've ever like put on because like heavy headphones usually hurt my neck I'm weird like that but uh I don't usually like that suctiony feeling either, but these are so fucking lightweight and comfortable, and their battery life is in. Whenever I go in and out of mute, it doesn't give a lag, it and they're Bluetooth, so I don't know how. Yeah, I'm I gonna think, go. But they're really. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm about to go get myself a new pair because I need to. Uh... I got these same day. These are same day kinds of uh, headphones. Also, like they'll they'll ship like today. You'll get them overnight, even.
Mm-hmm. I feel like if you're serious about headphones, you got to go with the the wraparound ones. Like, I know what you mean. I don't know. I I hate like the having the ones that go into your ears. Like, I don't know. It's just it's probably it's probably better for your your health, you know, too. Like 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 rather than having just like that sound like blast into your eardrums. Yeah, well, the the wraparound ones are better for me um, when I'm driving and everything too, and just moving around as much as I do. The I've, I've realized that I'm gonna reserve my earbuds when I'm just simply listening and not having to talk because they just they cause problems. I mean, right now I just took everything off and I'm speaking directly to into the device. Yeah. Um, some really good headphones in a minute because I saw some yesterday when I was shopping for something else. What's up, Fahim? Uh, Triggered me today. I got triggered, one could say. Um, it was about <clears throat> Mitch McConnell's episode, you know, like where he just basically froze for 30 seconds to a minute in front of the cameras. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like age isn't necessarily the problem because there's some people that are older than Mitch McConnell, that are sharper than I am. Um, I feel like just like, just the, just inherently like the idea like that, like being old just like makes you, uh, I mean, there's plenty of 80 year olds that are, upper 80s 90s that are perfectly yeah, my with dad, it my yeah. dad is one of them people don't yeah. uh, you take care of yourself a certain way you don't decline like that it's a myth people think about that but it's it's just something that happens to a lot of people because they're out of the know but yeah it's it doesn't have to happen going to draw from that is that oh we need to kick all the people whatever over a certain age out of congress i mean i feel like you're taking you're not you're not a you're just using something to i don't know affirm what you already believe real talk
90% roughly of the people I bring it up with having a problem with it. Yeah, the way like the way it works in Mexico is you get elected for president, you serve one six-year term and then you're done. You can't serve another term. And I kind of that kind of makes sense because like 6 years is enough to really do like that's enough time to really do something. But the fact that they like don't let you run consecutive terms, you know. I don't know. I feel like there's I love them. Um, I still think it'd probably be cooler living in a sailboat just because, like, I mean, even if it's the coolest fucking treehouse you've ever seen, I've seen some pretty cool treehouses. The idea of, like, living in a sailboat means you can you can go anywhere. Like, you can, well, anywhere that's water. You can, you can dock it any, anywhere, you know? Yeah, hell yeah. I get it. These land lovers don't necessarily get it, but maybe they will one day. You know what, though? though, Legit. When my partner gets home tonight, I'm going to propose family sailing lessons with the children so that we can escape to Canada if we need to. Cool. One of the the coolest videos I saw with uh, people living aboard their boat was this uh, young family. Uh, they had a son. This couple had a son. And they they lived aboard their boat, and they went up and down and took jobs uh, around the, you know, on the, sorry, on the East Coast, like I think anywhere from Florida to like North Carolina coast is where they went back and forth. But, you know, they made a living, and they were teaching their kid, their little son, how to, sail around the world and teach them. But, um, <clears throat> if we can also keep in mind, uh, people with disabilities, people, well, adults and children, with both physical
people and uh, mental disabilities. So like that that take over from the treehouse is like a no no for me. It it doesn't have to always be, you know, like we could even just be like like yeah, we find a good it doesn't have to be for disabled people, but we should we should be on the lookout yeah. for like the, 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 have you ever heard of hip no. camp? Hip camp is like Airbnb for like glamping or just straight up, you know, dry camping. Um, tree houses on both hip camp and Airbnb experiences um, to get booked like at the same time and get like, like there's this tiny house that with a full size bed. So it's two people maximum near the state park in Olympia. And it is booked year round. And it they charge like one twenty five a night, cause it's like the experience. We're glamping, so I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of money in that with, with little overhead. Derek and the Derek and the Cardinal. That's that's serious. It sounds like a cardinal. Loud. Yeah. That's about the squirrel again. It's a good thought. 
Yeah, for sure. Can you guys please click on those two links and run through them, skim through them real fast, see what catches your eye? <laughs> well, up here they have basically almost everyone either has or knows someone who has what's what they call, I mean, hunting camps. Uh, what state? Michigan. Yeah, the up specifically the upper peninsula of Michigan, um, which I don't know if anyone is aware of the state of Michigan. I mean, Derek is sure, certainly, but like the upper peninsula is about 30% of the land area of Michigan, but only 3% of the population. So it's a lot more sparsely populated than People have hunting camps that they either own or they lease uh, for an annual lease fee. And a lot of times they're on 20 to 40 acre parcels. And kind of it's it's a weird, it's an interesting social dynamic because like a lot of them are like shared amongst a lot of different people. And like you could just go up on any given weekend and you have no idea like who's going to be there, but you're all because there's a lot of them. They're just loaded with like bunk beds and shit because during hunting season, sometimes you get big groups of people. Uh, so they're just loaded with beds. But so like you, you could go up on any given weekend and like, even though you might hardly even know the people that are also there, you're like, you have a place to stay. So it's kind of just like an interesting social dynamic in, in the UP. Hey, Dickie. Michigan's prices look a lot, a lot hey, better man. than Washington. 
that's interesting. It's all kinds of interesting stuff there. Hey, Terry. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Akeem. How you doing? I guess I'll talk to Danny and Derek, even though. <laughs> but no, no, thank you. Yes, Any news on your brother-in-law? Terry, do you know anything about alternative uh, building techniques? You mean like um, earth ships and things like that? Like building out of recycled materials? I mean, that's kind of one, but, uh, you know, like straw bale construction, rammed earth, cob. I mean, there's a pretty wide variety out there. The funny thing about cement is that, and I mean, I don't really feel one way or another about this, but it does, it's a lot of, a lot of carbon dioxide emissions are from cement Okay. because I mean, really, because what yeah, is it? It's, it's basically limestone it's rock, which is probably going to be the opposite rock, of what we're trying to do uh, actually when you basically mix it up and spin it up a lot of that particulate goes back into the atmosphere but i mean i don't know i'm 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 not <laughs> well the thing is i'm not against i i've i mean i like i said i've i've been doing concrete jobs on the side for the past month and a half Yeah, probably a little bit here and there. Yeah, that's another, that's the worst part about it, actually.
Yeah. Look no, it, it isn't. If you're just doing a few yards, like it's not, it's not too much. I th and I honestly, I thought it was there. I thought there was more to it than I start until I started actually pouring them. And I mean, well, I mean, if you have, if you want the really nice finish, like there's a little bit more involved in that, but. What if we just bought the containers, contain the shipping containers? Oh yeah, people make houses out of those nowadays. So the link that's that I last put right now, that's a two hundred and sixty-two thousand dollar piece of property. It's not a big piece of property, but there are two co shipping containers on it. Look how look how it could be set up. Everybody gets their own shipping container. If it were to be a commune, which I would really love. I mean, maybe. Do you know any welders? You'd want a welder. No, I'm not against the idea. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I've seen shipping containers that are, you know, the size that's worthwhile being like five grand. But uh, I don't know. It seems like, I, I, I don't know, like some alternative building techniques might be better. You know, you, you still got to put in all kinds of fucking insulation. Otherwise, you, you just have a, you know, in the summer, even in northern climates, you just have yourself a, a sweat box. <laughs> you know, you have to do other things. It's not like... God, I hate how they put the property size in fucking square feet. It took me like, a, I mean, it took me a minute to figure out how big it is. So okay, so, so forty, so there's forty three thousand five hundred square feet in an acre. So it's about a quarter acre, it looks like. Yeah, a little less than a quarter acre. A-frame houses, that's the easiest to build. There's some nice, like, A-frame houses that they rent in the town that I live in, Marquette, Michigan. But the only, the only downside is I've been in a couple of them because I've known people. 
who have rented there. Like they, they have like, like the, like the downstairs, the main part is really, is pretty cool. And like, um, it's well set up for, for an A-frame, but the, the upstairs, it's like a, it's like one of those really narrow spiral staircases to a loft area above. And it's like, Well, the oddly enough, the U.S. Army barracks, the way they build those is one of the quicker, because obviously it's got to be moved sometimes. So I would look into that, a military construction of uh, uh, quarters and stuff like that. It's a good idea. Do you, do you know what they did, though? No, but I, my uncle was in... Um, was in during Vietnam, he was in Germany and, uh, they had to move their barracks and they had to do it in one day. <laughs> and, uh, they were able to do it and get it set back up, but it was, um, but that's, I, I don't like, I, that's what made me think of that was him saying they did it all in one day. So there are, if you, there are all those survival guys, um, their YouTube is just fucking loaded with those guys and they're always building shit out in the woods and they, I don't know why, but they go like autistically into showing you how to build a place out, out in the woods that you can easily maintain and, and, uh, um, you know, shelter through one guy was out there for three months and he was married cause he had a wedding ring or winter <laughs> however they they carry their tents with them and then they have entire like family of you know eight or nine people in them i don't know if you guys wouldn't do that but i was just thinking more along the construction of the of the facility versus tp living for a while you guys can do it I knew a guy who lived in a teepee in central Wisconsin. (laughs) 
it's a guy I went to school with and like at first like because like I, I was we had this like forestry office kind of at the school I went to and it was like really narrow and this one guy like oh he always smelled like like wood smoke and I was like huh like every time I like every time I went back I mean smell like wood smoke and then like later on I learned oh he's because he lives in a fucking teepee in January in Wisconsin so it makes sense now it's probably related to this guy I gave an uber ride to once it's really young guy it was like negative 10 out and in the course of uh, giving him a ride he told me about how he was living in his friend's backyard in a essentially a teepee uh, he didn't call it that though it wasn't quite a yurt it wasn't quite a teepee something in between um, but I was like yeah man that sounds like it gets cold he was like no nah, it's fine nah, I got a little wood burning stove in there and <laughs> he was he was he was doing all right. He was happy with his circumstances. No rent. Just chuck a little wood in his stove. and <laughs> He didn't smell like wood smoke, though. So, I don't know. Maybe he was doing something right. Oh, the guy, the guy I met, he, it was a full-fledged teepee. Like, the, the, like, like the, full, the full height of it was probably, like, well over 12 feet tall. And... Like I, I saw it. It was on this one guy, this one, this one guy's farm in near Rochelle, Wisconsin, the White Feather Farm. Uh, and yeah, it was the same deal. He wasn't, he wasn't paying, he wasn't paying like rent or anything. So, it's, I mean, that's kind of rough, but if you can do it, I guess it works for you. Yeah, man, save up money, get yourself a boat. Technically, you could buy something that had a lake on it, and then <clears throat> there are affordable, like, I don't know if a pontoon boat, if you could encapsulate it, but there are boats you could live in. Um, that would save you some problems, but, um, other than buying the boat. <laughs> you can still buy whole lakes in the UP if you have a million dollars or so to spend. There's a lot of lakes on, um, private land that's in enrolled in what they call the commercial forest land program where they pay just a, ridic a ridiculously low property tax. Like it's like a dollar 30 per acre a year, uh, property tax. And they all, I mean, they, a lot just companies that own thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres of forest land. And some of them have bodies of water on them that, still haven't been basically developed would well, have to be that way in Minnesota right the land of 10,000 lakes 
Yeah, it's it's that way in Minnesota too. I would say though, there's the difference uh, between the UP and Northern Minnesota is that a lot of the there's the, there's a lot more public like proportionally there's a lot more public land in Minnesota, whereas, I mean, you still have vast tracts of national forest, state forest land in the UP, but there's also a lot of private um private industrial timberland more more so than minnesota like proportionally speaking <clears throat> seems like minnesota or michigan makes that seems like a huge mistake for michigan Land wise, they, I I thought about buying some uh, acreage, but you're basically paying a goddamn mortgage on taxes um, for if you get over X amount of acres in, in here in Missouri. Anyway, um, I don't know. They probably give you pretty good uh, deals if you are wealth or you know like Missouri is very business friendly, so they they probably make a lot of it tax holidays for uh, corporations and stuff. Here in Michigan, it's uh, it land is taxed on a, on a millage system. I, I don't know. I know, I know some other States have millage systems, but uh, there is, like I said earlier, there's significant tax breaks for owning undeveloped forest land if you have i think i don't know i think you need 40 contiguous acres of forest land that is like over 50 percent of what they would consider a productive forest type meaning it has the potential to put on x board feed of basal area basically volume of timber uh, per year, which it, it's like, it, it doesn't need to be much. It could be like a swamp that has trees that hardly, hardly grow every year, but it, it would still qualify. Um, and there is, some, I, there's agri, there's a, there's an agricultural, like if you have it in, uh, enough of your property in ag land, there's, there's a reduced rate you pay, but it's not as good as some of other states like Wisconsin. Well, at one point, what I was thinking about doing, and I'm not sure <clears throat> how much brush or how much open land I had. They, they, there was a pretty good deal on 10 acres of land. But like I said, I didn't want to get caught in something where I was paying as much taxes out as I would in like a mortgage would be defe defeat the fucking purpose. But I was thinking about a business. And I was thinking about doing a biochar fertilizer, but I was wondering <clears throat> what I could use, like what I could plant that would be replenishable. Like if, if you could use some kind of woody type uh, weed to make the biochar out of instead of trees. Right. I'm sure you could 
definitely. I mean, shit, you live in Missouri. So <laughs> just in my experience of doing, being in the woods in Missouri, there's a lot of plants that grow really thick in the underbrush. Um, I'm sure you could find one that's native to your area that you could use just for woody biomass for this biochar product project that you got. I was, I was thinking like an all in one, like you make the biochar <clears throat> and cause that on its own biochar without any, without any assistance. Um, I think it gives you like 30% higher yields. You know, that's why when, when, a, when you do a burn off anyway, um, but um, I was one or like, I was going to set up, I got a washing machine. I was going to go ahead and make it to a centrifuge and maybe like try to figure out a good ratio to stuff to additives to it. Um, you know, like nitrogen or stuff, if, even if that shit's even necessary, but um, kind of make it a one, see how, what kind of yields I could get. Um, <clears throat> just experimenting a little bit with that. Um, but that's what I was, uh, <clears throat> that's what I was getting at with that. But I, I want something that would like, you could plan on X amount of acres and only have to harvest, you, you know, you would never have to go any further. I'd like to be able to replenish myself and not have to worry about, um, stuff like that. And you're right. Missouri is, it's no place for a band or beast in some set of woods around here. It's hard to get through. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of plants that like grow really brushy and thick and you could probably coppice it, meaning that you cut the above ground biomass off basically at the level of the soil and the root system remains intact and therefore after you after you cut it it'll it'll just pretty much re-sprout there's a lot of plants like that what i'm wondering is is it like is it an ounce how many ounces per acre i wouldn't want to get into something where i was you know was a detriment you know what i'm saying but if you get like small um farms and, and uh, greenhouses i was thinking places like japan where they don't they can't do that kind of thing um that would be a nice market to have europe that they can't europe is about the united states um <laughs> depending on where you live regulations are to come by <laughs> yeah yeah there's it, it is unique, and that's, I mean, there's other countries like that, but not countries with, they're not typically countries that have large GDPs or, I don't know, whatever, whatever other measurement of an economy you want to use. But there are, I, I have heard a lot of stories about stupid, like, state like more usually more at the state level like of of health departments shutting people down for pretty stupid reasons in my opinion like most mostly dairy farmers 
in Michigan. I've heard a lot of stories of them having a hard time with health departments. Like when I worked for, I worked for this company called Calibration Technologies and we went out wherever they had toxic gas sensors that like for ammonia, uh, <clears throat> you know, any, anything that, uh, CO2, CO, oxygen. But anyway, the funniest thing about that was it was during the Clinton administration, all these companies panicked and they bought all this equipment, right? But the companies that didn't buy the equipment, they're, they're, they don't have any problem. They're grandfathered in, whatever. But all the companies that did after they bought it and established it through whatever means, they have to maintain that equipment. So every six months, they have to calibrate them and make sure that they're, you know, usable, all that kind of stuff. And they have all, they have these cells and these, they have infrared sensors and they have these sensors that have these cells in them. And these cells go bad all the time. And it's, it's it's kind of a scam, but what well, is a scam? But um, I always just think it's hilarious that like some these companies that did it or <laughs> have to maintain it, and we've destroyed uh, like uh, budgets. Like when we come in, if there's a bunch of shit wrong, we destroyed like a like a maintenance budget or something like that, or even a plant manager's budget. So. Um, I just, it's kind of weird how that works. Like, like how do they make, force somebody to do something like that when other people don't have to? It's, it's kind of weird. Well, Terry, I got uh, Derek and Danny looking at all the building options up there. But that biochar um, idea, if you guys get some land, that's not, uh, I don't imagine it's a tough one um, to get going. Like a tough, other than getting the uh, some kind of burning station or something like that, which is just fire and some, some uh 50 gallon drums or something like that and then getting the product out i mean that would be a pretty easy job other other than finding a resource a renewable type resource or something or a sustainable one well i think the, the, the main thing it's got going like, it sounds like it would be easy to incorporate into an already existing farm therefore like a lot of people who own land already could experiment with that. Like you, you wouldn't have to devote an acreage for that specifically. It could, it could complement your existing farm income, you know? I was, I was thinking greenhouses. Um, if I bought something, that's what I want to do is at least one greenhouse, if not multiples. And that's exactly what my thinking was, was get a greenhouse going, maybe a farmer's market or something as well. Not really concerned with that so much, but it would definitely be, it'd be a shame not to, uh, to let things go to waste because you're always going to grow more than you're going to use. 
And then uh, through that experiment, that's exactly what I was thinking with the biochar and stuff. I don't really want to do, I might make some raised um, gardens outside and I'd even want those covered. But uh, I don't want to do ground farming and by any stretch of imagination. I do want to own a tractor. Is that weird? Nah, you can use them. You broke up, Terry. I was going to say no. It's yeah, if I, if I didn't live where I'm at, because they're one. super useful for all sorts of things. My wife off. Farming and, and otherwise. I like seeing her mad. Well, there it was refer to Danny and Derek or whoever. The abilities out there, and you the sad thing like is seeing we don't your wife mad now. Older people in the world, um, we we call them boomers and denigrate them. But those are if you can find an old carpenter that lives around an area where you, um, their wealth of knowledge is uh, vastly. You know, superior to most you know people, so always take advantage of that if you can find some somebody. And a lot of guys that I've noticed around here lately is like a handyman stuff, like a guy that hires himself out to do stuff like that. And um, there's no harm in asking, "Hey, could you show me how to do that?" Like you know, build a floor while you're doing it. If you're going to help them, free help. You just show me the trade so you guys can duplicate. You got to watch your house get blown down by the wind, right? Well, yeah, I, I've had douchebags call me a boomer. I'm fifty. I'm not even fifty yet. Like you, boomer. You know, like you know, and that's why I think abortion is it shouldn't just be should be mandatory. Yeah, Dickie, before you came in here, I was talking about how, like, the people, like, who, like, were watching the, you know, the whole Mitch McConnell episode, like, who, like, who, who came to that conclusion that, like, oh, like, like, it's just, oh, like, it, the problem is old people, like, like, that's, that's it, that's the problem, like, well, I mean, there's a lot of people that are way older than Mitch McConnell that are completely sharp, and you can learn a lot from, so I don't think that's the takeaway from it. But yeah, there's a lot of people have a lot of wisdom. It just I wouldn't. Um, I mean, if I knew people, I'd give them some. Like, say you guys had a place that was close to me or something, and you said I need somebody to weld something like a good weld. I would come do it. I mean, I can I can weld pretty well, and I know you'd have to be close. <laughs> you gotta remember.
Mm-hmm. Once my wife kicked me out, I guess I'm living with you guys. Get a couch. couch. <laughs> I'd be on a couch. My my fear in life has always been that my brother is going to show up at my house. <laughs> That's one of my greatest fears. You could you couldn't get work out of that motherfucker. <laughs> a million years. Or, you know, if people really own factories, they could make their own work schedules. They wouldn't have to work, but, you know, X amount of hours a week. They could get days off when they needed them. You know, it just would take. I could get every queer person to join in on this. I'll go to the meeting and I'll tell them. Like, if we have a plan, I'll gather them all up. <laughs> and I'll hit up some people that I know too, hopefully with uh, ambition and aspirations to leave the project. Keep going. Perfect. A lot of a lot of a lot of queers are former alpha males that still own tractors and dozens of guns, and one of them may or may not live in my house. So we can all get along. I I'm going to tell you, I have a I have a sixth sense that Carnal is kind of a guy that can do just about all the kind of stuff that you know. That's my sixth sense because those kind of guys. No, <laughs> he he may be he may be putting from the rough. I don't know, but it's okay if he is. <laughs> but I think he's a he's kind of got that jack of all trades ability. He's a guy that sees it, does it. Where a guy like me will go grab a book, and you know, have to do all the stuff where he would probably just get it and. No, but there is a trans uh, community on a like alpaca alpaca farm in Colorado. I need to look it up, and I should just be looking it up instead of unmuting. My bad. Alpaca spit. I tell you, uh, yeah, that's the kind of, I don't know why it is, but there are, like, I knew guys in high school that I, that couldn't think their way out of a box, and next thing you know, they're building porches on the back of their house and shit, and it's, it just amazes me, that, and I know they didn't go to school and learn any of that shit, <laughs> so it just amazes me.
and I'm not I'm not saying that about anybody specific. These, these people were way this guy one particular person I'm thinking of is like a box of rocks dumb. But he can build anything. Real assholes, but I don't know. I just thought they were spitters. That's a I think of them like camels spitting on people and shit. But what I was, my point was making those or posting those videos is that there's endless and a lot of those people are very instructive too. They tell you the things not to do and, how, you know, make sure you you level out where you, you level away from your house where water doesn't stand. Um, all kinds of different uh, little tidbits. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if they're making any money off of it or not, but they sure are. Uh, putting a lot of time in to because that setting up a camera every day, giving little descriptions that ain't easy. Danny, have you been inviting Zach and people up or? Not. I was away from the phone. Why in the hell were you doing that, Terry? Showering. 
damn, that was a quick shower, bro. <laughs> I just I need that much time just to wash my ass. I don't always use soap. It was when a quick one, no doubt. So it's it's not good to use like soap. I did use soap, Danny. Like, for your skin, you mean? Yeah, yeah. That's vegan propaganda. I don't think I've ever been labeled that. Uh, vegan propaganda. It doesn't... It, it, to, to me, when somebody calls somebody a boomer, it sounds... It, it's more like they're revealing themselves. It's like... it's it, To me, it's like the dumbest vegan. annotation to be like, you're a boomer! Oh. I'm smarter and wiser than you? Okay, thank you. <laughs> For me, it's like my my best friend's dog when I was a kid was named Boomer. So that's like whenever I think of it, I just think of a dog. And I don't, I don't really have the time. Like, I got a buddy that's always shitting on millennials, and he's... Punk kids. The other day, I'm, I'm sitting there and they're walking down the street uh, on their phone and this, that, and the other. I'm like, dude, you're a millennial. And it was yeah. Like I don't think trick. people realize how old like a millennial like it, like one how like the I feel like when when people like refer most people like are called boomers or Gen Xers and with like millennials too. It's like they're like millennials are like the older millennials are in their forties by now. I'm pretty sure. That's a Zoomer he's talking about, probably. Like, you know, it's probably a Zoomer that he means.
I'm not good at holding text conversations either. It's just not. It's not ideal. Well, you can get shit over with a lot quicker. Because <laughs> when you're texting, you you especially if you have some kind of concept that you're you're texting about, it's like what the fuck. Thirty thirty seconds. Two of it. We got another one, but phone conversation that gets me. the same amount of information Our across as work, uh, we work together. Five to ten minute text conversation. They, they write notes, which also drives me nuts. And I and I, I introduced them one day. I said, "These are what we call emails," <laughs> and like because a lot of it's information that I just have to relay to the doctor. It's like if you just put that in an email and send it to both of us, then I wouldn't have to re. I know mine does. I know hardly anybody can read my cursive. Yeah, my cursor's fucked. I can barely get. I can barely do my my uh, my signature. Just kind of looks like a scribble, but I guess that's enough. If I do it left-handed, it's really legible. But if I write in my dominant hand, then it's not. But it takes too long to do it with my left. So you're a lefty too? I'm not truly ambidextrous, but I can, I do things naturally with my left hand. Um, and, uh, that I, and there are certain things I do with my left that I can't really do with my right. But for the most part, I'm right-handed, but like I can write with my left hand and I write normal. I don't write with my arm way over. Like my sister's a true lefty and she writes almost like she's on the other side of the table. Like her, <laughs> she's almost writing upside down. I knew there was something wrong with you. You're a lefty. I think the only thing I do right-handed That's is um, like a mouse and keyboard because just like the first computers I ever used were like public computers and they're always, the mouse is always on Just fucked right from the right from the get go. <laughs> I may have been. I'll go ahead. Is that why he pronounces contiguous? Contiguous. What you could. Oh, oh. I'm I'm sorry.
Uh, I think I said 40 contiguous. <laughs> now that I say it a second time, it doesn't sound right. Uh, acres. Uh, well, look at the people you talk to. It's got a G in it, though, doesn't it? <laughs> Look how it's spelled. You could easily see how I could get to contiguous. <laughs> People, I've like never heard contiguous. I've only ever heard contiguous. Pretty fucking easy one. But maybe now that I've said it so many times, I've never heard these words before. I'm not sure anymore. Good point. And and they say the H in 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 herb. It's herb. You don't print or you got some hot well, hey, don't use the word Jermaine because of hot, Nick Brahma. He ruined it for me. Get that. That's who I was. It's a no it's word. a common word in the law. Brady was just stealing it. Well, the I was gonna say Terry, the etymology of the word herb may be Greek, and that means you probably don't say the e in it, or you don't say the h in it. Would be my, would be my guess. That's the reason why we probably drop. Well, they don't even yeah, know how to use an article. At, like they go stuck to, up ass to hospital. British motherfuckers think they're better than us. Damn it! I wish Gator was here. He has to answer for this. Have you ever seen old English? Like what it looks like? It's so weird. 
Yeah, man, I did a, a study for myself because I, I wanted to look at it. I, I looked at some um, literature. It it was it was the goofiest thing. I I I was I was having a time. What's crazy is oh, go ahead, Dicky. Yeah, it's almost hard yeah, to I would, acknowledge. I want to look for a, a Latin so different. teacher now to. I was just gonna make a correction. I guess there isn't like a like the word herb as we know it is from the Latin for herba or however they pronounce it. I don't know if they accented like the the Greeks, but I just want to quickly insert, and then I got to run, uh, that I worked with a summer program for elementary and middle school kids, and we had four programs come in, uh, UofL School of Music, uh, uh, Center for the Arts, uh, Theater, and Kentucky Shakespeare and Louisville Ballet and the kids you would think they wouldn't respond all that positively to the Kentucky Shakespeare group but they dominated those kids attention and what the most fun exercise they gave all these kids um these combination of words to for Shakespearean insults. And then they would have these rap battles based on combining different Shakespearean insults. The kids fucking loved Kentucky Shakespeare. And, and they made it so much fun for the kids. It was really amazing. You, I mean, you would have thought the kids would have been bored to death with Kentucky Shakespeare programming, but it was the exact opposite. It was so much fun with the inner city, low-income kids having Shakespearean rap battles. It was awesome. Shakespearean rap is interesting. 
the other thing that they responded most to was the programming from Louisville Ballet because they alternated between two instructors and one of them was a hip-hop dance ace that taught them some amazing moves, African-based. And the other one was more traditional, incorporated with, you know, just educating ballet movie moves, elevate this position, that position. But she she modernized it in a way that was relatable. Uh, a very traditional African-American hymnal. Uh, so, anyway, you know, the two programs, Louisville Ballet and Kentucky Shakespeare, that you thought would have bored the shit out of the kids were easily the most too popular with the kids, like by a long shot. What, what is this, Derek? Pronouncing contiguous wrong is due to being left-handed? Are you making a play on ambidextrous? or? She, she said contiguous, see? That's how you fucking pronounce it. <laughs> it's contiguous. Someone said contiguous. Before you came in. I'm sorry, say that again? Someone said contiguous before sorry, you came in like again. an absolute madman. Yep. Now that Maria... So, it's contiguous. Now that Maria said it, I'm, I, I'm reaffirmed in the... In, in, I'm, I'm, uh, see, like, we have some independent verification that that is actually the right way to say it. Well, and... I'm ambidextrous, so it's not dependent on right-left-handed. So contiguous must be the right, right pronunciation because I'm ambidextrous by that one. I write with my right hand, uh, and I do, I use scissors and a lot of other things with my left hand, so it just goes back and forth, and I'm the daughter of a dentist who is ambidextrous, uh, 
you always want to go see an ambidextrous dentist, but see now you, yeah. you got ambidextrous right instead of Dickie's ambidextrous. Is there room for debate there? Dickie, Dickie knows everything. Dickie knows everything. I don't, I don't get hung up like the way the way people say words has more to do with their, like the maybe the the teacher that they had may have had a poor accent, right? And that's the way you, when you you get imprinted on you, you just pronounce things the way that you heard them, and yeah. Name. Yeah, like sin, like Terry. Right? right. That was funny last night that you didn't know who Sinhead was. <laughs> yeah, I I gave up on correcting people a, like a bazillion years ago with grammar and whatever, especially because it just irritates people. And especially when they under when you understand them. Exactly. Like, if there's no, it's it's the communication has been done. If you understood what they said, exactly. So I gave up on it a long time ago. Are you guys saying cuticulitis? No, I I don't have the authority to correct it. Most anybody on anything. Yes, that's what we're saying. I, it, I just. I feel like I, there need to be like another letter after the G for it to be pronounced that way. It just doesn't seem right. And you know, I when it comes to the United States, I I just I'm gonna always default to the contiguous states, not, not including Alaska, Alaska and Hawaii. Oh, but if you weren't ambidextrous, then you would probably pronounce it correctly. Probably. Probably. But it's the same thing. It still irritates me slightly when people say nuclear instead of nuclear. But I don't, I don't say anything anymore. Because, you know, Funkin' Wagnalls and other dictionaries say both pronunci pronunciations are acceptable. So it can irritate me all day long, but I shut the fuck up about it. Yeah, me too. Unless they're trying to pretend that they're an expert on international relations or they're a nuclear physicist. <laughs> if they're trying to pretend any of that stuff, it's time to call them the fuck out. Say, say it, the, Maria, say it correctly and then say it incorrectly because both times it sounded like you were saying it. Nuclear versus nuclear?
Well, you put you put more emphasis on the last syllable, that time. but it sounded like you were saying the same thing the first time. No, the, the there's st- almost an extra syllable. No, it's the correct. It's the like first, three syllables instead of three syllables that way. The first pronunciation is N. Phonetically, phonetically, the first spelling pronunciation would be the one we use, which is N U C L E A R. But it sounds like you're no, it's nuclear. nuclear. But the other phonetic. <laughs> if I say clear, I say clear the same I'm, way. I'm I say trying nuclear. to explain it. My... <laughs> Are you it's talking nuclear? Right now? This nuclear. sounds like mm-hmm. tomato. <laughs> this sounds like the tomato. <laughs> tomato. Different Son of a bitch. <laughs> you say tomato. I say tomato. Okay. Yeah, man, you a hundred percent change my diaper. Tomato, tomato, motherfucker. All right. Sometimes you got to take a stand, though. I had an English teacher. So it's a tomato, potato situation. But sometimes you need to make a stand. I had an English teacher who was reading from a book. This was in high school, and he pronounced. Maniacal, maniacal. Just kept on going. I asked him if he meant maniacal, and he told me and the class that you could pronounce it either way. He didn't want to admit that he pronounced it wrong. And cannot pronounce it both ways. <laughs> right. That's We're, funny. What? I- you, you, you did a, you did a good face. thing that day. That's just like trying to follow Russell Brand uh, and his British pronunciations, vitamin, la, la, la. But in first year of theater, we had a substitute teacher one time who was Russian, and he would use the middle finger uh, of his hand to poke on his own forehead and say, fuck us, fuck us, fuck us, when he was meaning to say focus. And it, it really pissed him off when, oh, yeah, that's, that's accurate. And then we had another substitute professor who was British. And in, when you're in theater school, uh, you take dictation classes and you learn about the international phonetics alphabet and a ma- a standard American pronunciation. And I had an argument with them about pronunciation words. Not an argument, but I was just asking them. And when I finally rephrased my question correctly, in acceptable pronunciation. Yeah, but the British are too far and, gone. 
there's not even a point in really trying to correct them. They're so fucked up. I mean, like correct them because it's fun and funny. But aluminum? Nah. Schedule? Nah. I mean, we could go on and on. I'm just saying there are letters of the law in place about standard acceptable pronunciation across different countries and continents. Yo, that's kind of sad, though. I had a great English teacher, uh, Mr. Jones, uh, sophomore year high school. He'd, he'd talk about all kinds of, like, cool adventures that he had in the 70s and all kinds of, like, sexual conquests, <laughs> drug stories, fucking concerts, all kinds of shit. He was actually a good teacher, too. But the stories were... Yeah. I... I have the same exact experience with my sophomore English teacher in high school. And, you know, she was a total bitch and really hard on us, but she taught us to write timed essays, pointed essays, five-point essays. She was fresh out of college and a hard ass. Um... But I learned so much from her in terms of, you know, being prepared and writing under pressure when I needed to. And that's really served me well. And the reason I, I'm relating to what you just said, Derek, not just about high, high school sophomore English teacher being of value to me, but, you know, it was... My classical guitar teacher all throughout my childhood, and he told me all kinds of life stories uh, that, you know, when he was in college, he used to go to shows all the time. And la la la. It turned out to be Woodstock. Uh, so, yeah. I, and he always talked about his wife's name was Ruth. And if she ever left him, he'd be ruthless. Yeah. So, both my guitar teacher and my sophomore English teacher served me really, really well in different ways. The big mystery to me was always the art teachers. I never knew if they were good or bad. I never, I never knew if they were good people or bad people. I never knew because they'd give us mostly just garbage.
they disappear probably to the teacher's lounge or outside to smoke a joint. They weren't, they weren't really part of the process. Yeah. My art teacher kicked me out of the art program in high school, so I dropped out. <laughs> What'd you do? How do you get kicked out of art? You can do whatever you want in art. What the fuck? Yeah. So I guess oh, apparently not in that. an that old girl's so Catholic high school. Was she strict? They wanted... You didn't look high school? They wanted looking me to for draw a in the correct perspective. I suppose. I didn't last long enough to finally find out. It was like the second project we had. <laughs> so, got kicked out. And I was like, I am not taking chemistry. <laughs> Bye. Went to public high school and I was... I don't know. I I just I was I, oh. my mom didn't give a shit. I mean, like she wasn't somebody I could really talk to, so it just happened. Yeah, yeah. and I. That's if, if I had it to do all over again, I wouldn't. I would have quit. My sophomore year, got a GED and went to community college, and then went on. Was I? I wish I would have done it sooner than I did. I I was trying to. Because my disability uh, ruined uh, my timeline for graduating, I I I was holding out. I was like, I'm I'm still gonna do this. I'm still gonna graduate. I was on track, but um, I was 21, and I, I some shit happened.
Well, let's if if any of you read anything by John Taylor Gatto, he's actually got YouTube videos too, but he's better to read. Anyway, John Taylor Gatto um, had quit his. He wrote a book and kind of wrote a book as a fuck you to the public school system, and. and why they couldn't form like some kind of monastery school and teach, you know, take on X amount of kids. Right. Um, because that would be another option if they're, if they're still qualified to teach. Um, or if you're paying them, I don't think you have to have the same qualifications if it's a private uh, school, but that would be so much better than the way that we teach now, particularly the, like the hour long or the 45 minute class. Right. And then you're, you never get into a subject. Interesting. I mean, what's the problem with spending four hours a morning on, uh, so you some kind of scientific concept or something like that. You're in it for an hour, and then all of a sudden the bell goes off if you've lost it, right? Everything that you just, you know, your mind tells you, oh, wipe that. What do we got next, biology or something? You have four hours to, to you get stuck on a concept that you want to really do, explain to kids or relate to kids. You have the time to do it, and and. They customize it to um, that where you get this well-rounded learning process, it but it starts with I the higher end. Uh, then, uh, doing there's some no sort reason of, like, that somebody 11 years old can't understand the concept of trigonometry. high school that has like differential equations and shit like that, which I don't know if that exists, but it, it probably does. But it's generally just for the kids that are what they consider, you know, advanced.
in her mind. Yeah, plus they're not really memorizing much anyway. What does it matter if you memorize something short term? After 12 years, you can't remember fucking most of it. Then you got a bunch of people that think they've memorized a lot of shit. And then, what, they think they're capable of critical thinking? It's a mess. Catch what he said. How pretty much it's like they dumb the curriculum down, especially for the kids in the poorer districts. They dumb the curriculum down. They don't do any additional, any more work than just shooting out their fucking lesson plan. And you know why they do that, don't you? Because, because we're poor and they think that well, there are these adverse effects uh, if, uh, that affect these children. What it, what it has to do is the teaching to test idea, right? So you only have to have the kids know so much. So that's why, in particularly in because in, they don't generally have the same um, environment to learn in. This there's there's you know you, everyone knows all the the problems, but a um, that's why we have so many dumb kids now or they're not dumb. They just don't know how to think their way through things because they're just teaching them how to answer questions on tests so they can get money for their school district. It's a, it's a fucking vicious cycle. Teachers teach to this test because the administration says, Hey, we got to You, they've got to be able to pass this test so we can get funding from the state or federal government. That's what's happened. And so you don't have teachers that have the freedom.